<laughs> what I always like is every now and again, I'll do like a YouTube video or I'll do uh, something on here. And so I'll be like, dude, your guys' editor, whoever that is, is crazy. I'm like, it's me. <laughs> like, yeah. it's So if there's an edit that makes fun of me, it's me making fun of me. Like that's like in the YouTube videos. Uh, yeah, it's that's nice, just me nice. self-deprecating. But so at our base, uh, one day we brought in me, one of the nurses and one of the pilots. Uh, we're less mature probably than the rest of our base. And we decided, mm. like, guys, we got to bring in Nerf guns and have a Nerf fight in the base. And so we did. And we're kind of like, this is either going to irritate people because they're going to be finding Nerf darts everywhere forever. Uh, Truth. Or, or it'll be great. And it ended up kicking off a Nerf culture of people smuggling Nerf guns in and then surprising each other and shooting each other with Nerf guns. And so. Oh, nice. It's a nonstop thing. So yesterday, after we ran one hell of a call, uh, we get up in the morning and immediately start shooting Nerf guns at each other, right? And so yeah, at one point, um, as you do. Yeah. yeah. And so at one point the pilot, he's in the pilot's room, he is out of ammo and I'm like, wait, 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 stop, 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 stop. I'm like, I'm a, I got an idea. And so I run and I grab a, he's got two rounds left. I rub, I rub, I run and I grab a tin can, uh, pop can. And I put it on my head. I'm like, you got to shoot it off. And this, the range is well beyond a reasonable Nerf gun range. Like yeah. it's just stupid. And I'm like, yeah, cause I'm not worried he's going to hit me in the eye. Cause I'm like, this thing's not going to come anywhere near. He's like, all right. He has two darts left, right? He fires one dart, misses completely. The next dart, uh, it like you, you could watch, Nerf darts will make decisions in flight, kind of go left, right, <laughs> left, right. And the next dart, yeah. it kind of ducks left, ducks right, and then nails the can dead center. If you have seen the movie Apollo 13, when they finally save the astronauts at the very end, and like it was that level of energy in the room, like we went nuts and then the oncoming crew comes do i tell them about the innovation i mean eventually yeah but the first thing i tell them about is that effing nerf shot yeah and that was it. i'm just envisioning I, I wasn't expecting it to go that way i was expecting uh the pilot to you know be down to his last two shots mm-hmm. fires one misses and then you're like listen i can shoot you or you can do it yourself <laughs> and then he wow. just turns the nerf gun on himself and you know yeah. yeah. Wow. Uh, We've been watching some dark TV. Boy, apparently. No, no. He, he just William tell the pop can off my head and that's yeah. what happened. So and it, it went great. But on that dark note, let's uh, let's start the show. This podcast is hosted by Chris Finkston and Spencer Oliver. They are both experienced paramedics. They've done everything from 911 ground ambulance to volunteer fire department work and are both currently flight paramedics. This podcast reviews scenarios based on real calls run by real out-of-hospital clinicians. Details are changed to protect the privacy of those involved and to present educational opportunities to the listener. This podcast is EMS 2020. Hey, everybody, welcome to another episode of EMS uh, 2020. Uh, on this podcast, we, uh, you know, we talk about calls that actually happened uh, pre-hospital. Calls that you guys send us, by the way. And if you want your call to be on this show, then head on over to our social media. We are at EMS 2020 show on Instagram and EMS 20 slash 20 on Facebook. On Facebook, there's a pinned post. On Instagram, we have our description and uh, our bio, rather. And in the bio... There is a Beacons page, and there you will find a link to a form where you can submit your call. Uh, Go ahead and fill out that form, and if we like your call, we'll get a hold of you. 
And uh, yeah, that's what we're going to be talking about today. But before we go too much farther, uh, we have to talk about an upcoming, uh, I don't know if I can call it an upcoming or the upcoming, but either way, there is an upcoming conference called the uh, Fast 24 Conference. Uh, it's uh, by FlightBridge Ed. And if you want to learn more about it on the interwebs, go to flightbridgeed.com slash fast24. Uh, but basically, this is a conference that's going on from June 10th to the 12th. 2024 in Wilmington, North Carolina, and you need to find a way uh, to get there. Because look, like online education has been absolutely fantastic these days. I mean, evidence of that is flightbridgeed.com and their online courses. Um, however, uh, there is nothing quite like being able to attend a conference and not only be involved in some of the discussions about critical care transport and pre-hospital transport and pre-hospital care in general, but also to sign up for the pre-convention stuff where you get to uh, take courses that are actually taught by people you've definitely heard of such as, oh, I don't know, Jeff Murphy from Master Your Medics, which we've all heard of Master Your Medics. Uh, go ahead and check out uh, flightbridgeed.com slash fast24 and uh, get signed up. And here's here's the, absolutely the greatest part about all of this. I'm going to be there. Yeah. 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 I'm not teaching or yeah. anything, um, but, you know, or speaking. But, you know, uh, but I, I will be there. He'll be standing outside I, wishing he could be in. Yeah, with a cardboard <laughs> sign. No, I've actually been invited to be there uh, as a uh, as a special appearance, uh, along with the guys from Master Medics and the EMS Avengers. Well, we'll be there. Uh, Spencer won't be because he sucks. And uh, yeah. yeah. But other than that, yeah. So go ahead, check out uh, fast, uh, Flightbridge, <laughs> flightbridgeed.com slash Fast24. Get signed up. I will see you guys there. Uh, if you go to one conference this year, go to that one. It will be worth it. Uh, so with that, um, boop, 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 boop. Spence, what you got? Uh, well, I don't have a Nerf War. That, uh, yeah. All right, everyone, I, turn it off. I'm kind of sad. Turn yeah. it off. <laughs> the Will only you... thing I've ever done was we built a large blanket fort that we named Fort Kickass with you know, <laughs> in your base in our base. Nice. Uh, yep. Uh, no ground paramedics allowed. Like, and... Sorry. <laughs> 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 I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Oh god. Um, yeah. I can, uh, I can, but, I can uh, hear the, the keyboards typing away for their comments and emails <laughs> now. <laughs> Hey. Uh, no, no one was allowed. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. People who no, think TXA uh, does not help clotting are not allowed. <laughs> but uh, Nerf guns would have made it that much better. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, with that sad note, let's talk about uh, this call because it's who it's a call. Um, all all right. right. Without <laughs> giving anything away. Start drinking now. All right. Uh, I do have a beer. So excellent. Uh, let's talk about the perspective of who gave us this call. Uh, this call came from Tem. Tem is an EMT of about one year experience at the time that uh, this call occurred. Uh, they are nearing the end of their own paramedic program and are in the, uh, oh, uh, the part of their internship where, you know, the person's like, hey, man, you got this. I'm going to stand back and you tell me what to do. That part of it. Uh, they are currently on this call working as an EMT. Uh, important to this call, they do have an IV endorsement, so they are permitted to start IVs. Uh, okay. But yeah, they are working with a paramedic that I'm calling SIS. Uh, Sorry, and say that, we will spell that S Y S. Gotcha. SIS. So we have TEM yeah. and SIS. Yes. Are you sure we don't have SIS and TEM? No, it's TEM and SIS. Okay. I know what I said. Gotcha. Yeah. No, yeah, right. fair, fair enough. Yeah. Fuck uh, me. And we will. 
<laughs> and we will unfortunately need to talk about uh, sis uh, because it is pertinent to this call. Okay. Um, so here's the deal. Sis is a new medic with less than six months experience in okay. that role. Uh, but they do have several years experience as an EMT working in the service that they are working in for, on this call. Uh, Tem and Sis have been uh, working together for about a month after Sis and a previous partner had a uh, what's described as a personality conflict. Okay. Yeah. Um, so Tem says that Sis seemed like a nice enough partner, but they were con- concerned about the pairing. Um, Sis has a reputation within the service for being a provider who makes questionable treatment decisions. Um, I was given okay. some examples, but I won't <laughs> go over them uh, because it, it's not really important. And, you know, it's it's basically through the scope mm-hmm. of one person or stories. Right. But essentially... What I could decipher from this, uh, from these uh, examples, was that these are categories of a paramedic uh, both failing to recognize the severity of uh, of uh, conditions um, and failing to treat those conditions, uh, or I guess overreading sometimes like what would be a more benign condition and pushing for treatments that don't really fit okay. into a treatment box. Gotcha. Um, so that is it now. And, and maybe some PIC stuff there as well, but you know, here's the thing. This all could just be like that juicy in-house shit talking that, uh, happens at some agencies. Um, but it's not because when they were put on a car, uh, together, a supervisor for the service does tell Tem like, Hey, you need to watch this guy and keep an eye on their clinical decision making. Okay. Um, so, by the way, uh, I want you to remember this supervisor because they will come into this later. Okay. So, uh, Chris, I, I would like to. I would like your thoughts on this because, yeah, I think mm. it's hard. <laughs> you know, it's um, it is hard because. I don't I don't like the poisoning of the well uh, from a supervisor being like, hey, you better watch out for this person. Because, you know, like you said, this could just be some juicy in-house shit talking. And there's been a lot of situations where it is. One of the things that we're really good at in this profession is uh, recognizing when we don't think someone's a good provider and making sure everybody else knows. You know, like uh, we mm, tend to kind yeah. of lament that. Um <clears throat> And there, there's a lot of subconscious drivers for that, you know, because I don't think it's necessary that people make stuff up. I mean, some people do make stuff up out of whole cloth and they're, they suck. But I think a lot of people, um, it gets easy to do because one, unfortunately, there's a part of our brain that juicy gossip just gets tickled, you know, just it gets tickled by, by juicy gossip. There's just that yeah. part of the brain, you know, and so there's there's that. The other thing is that when you're working with somebody you know, and you're working on the same patient and things go wrong, you want to be able to distance yourself from the wrong thing sometimes. So it also becomes good to, you know, there's a subconscious reason to blame the other person. Um, And it can be, and also I've noticed a lot of times like there'll be people where it's like once trust is broken, people tend to find problems even when there aren't, you know what I mean? Like, sure. Yeah. They're they're looking for it. Yeah. They've kind of been, uh, exactly. Whereas uh, like anchored to it. Yeah. Yeah. Like, whereas, you know, someone who's trusted, there's a call that goes bad. You tend to assume like, ah, it was probably 
It's probably just like no one could have done that call. Then you have the person where it's like, yeah, they made some mistakes early on. Maybe their personality isn't the best. And we tend to just be like, oh, well, that call went bad, obviously, because of them. And then maybe we fill in the gaps with fictions here and there. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, this is a hard one. And I don't like labeling people as bad clinicians. But if someone is yeah. a bad, bad, bad clinician, then, yeah, I mean, you do have to keep an eye on it. So, yeah, I mean, the, yeah, those are kind of my thoughts on it is, I mean, yeah. On one hand, it's like, yeah, you know, you need to make your own judgment of people and try to ignore that ambulance rumor mill. But on the other side of things, like, sometimes it can be earned, you know? <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I don't like a supervisor telling somebody who is technically going to be under the command of somebody else that, hey, you need to watch this person because they, they might not be good. But I don't, I don't care for that. That strikes me as very unprofessional. And it's almost like the supervisor being like, hey, can you do my job really quick and just make sure this person's good? I'm like, <laughs> yeah, no, that, why aren't that's you? That's kind of where it rubs. Yeah. That, that's kind of where it rubs the wrong way is like, I, hey, you know, if if there's a concern, I like I, I'm torn between the is there value in being warned like, hey, you know, the, this guy maybe has made some questionable decision makings. Keep an eye on that. Like I, there's a part of me that's like, I would like to know that. Um, but I don't think I would like to know that from my supervisor. Mm -hmm. I, I feel like as a employee, uh, being supervised, I, I want my company to be able to fix that before yeah. it became my problem Well, or, yeah. you know, uh, yeah. So, and the thing is we don't have enough information I'm sure on this and, and maybe we should probably just move on from it. But one other thing I would say is that, um, the proper thing is if you have, if you have a clinician that's not doing well, the proper thing to do is to be like, hey, you need to go back into a training session uh, of some kind. We need to increase your coaching, increase your training. Because if someone's having some incidents, the best thing to do, and what I have done as a supervisor, is recommend, hey, this person needs an additional month uh, with an FTO, with a trainer. Yeah. And then when that person does well, what you do as a supervisor, especially if you know that that reputation is out there, what will happen eventually is you'll tell someone, hey, you're working with so-and-so, and you'll say like, ah. What you do yeah. as a supervisor, once you put the person, put that person back through through training and coaching, what you do is you champion them. You'd be like, hey, look, they've actually gone back through a month of FTO. They did awesome. You know, I really think this is going to be uh, good for them. If it's not, you know, let me know and we can deal with it. But, you know, I, 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 I really, if yeah. this person, what, what the employee needs to know is they need to know that if this person was actually bad, you as an organization wouldn't be putting them out there. Yeah. That's yeah. what they need to know. I, I uh. I agree. I think that I like that piece where it's, you know, hey, the the system recognizes and the system has ways of uh, you know, the, the system that the employer uses has ways of, you know, correcting, you know, like, hey, because some people just need more like they may not have gotten the exposure they needed to. And then they go out and they get the hard calls right away. And then, yeah, they look like right. garbage because <laughs> they never got any hard calls during their internship. Yeah. Um, I do like the, I, I, I agree with your statement, um, with the poisoning of the well, I think that there's probably better ways that the supervisor could say, Hey, yeah. you know, like keep an eye on this without saying that. Um, and I think the reason that we all like the juicy gossip is because there's sort of an, we are included via exclusion of the other Ooh, people. Yeah. We're you in know, a club it, now. It, yeah, like, hey, you trusted me enough to be like, watch out for this guy. Yeah. You're one of mine. I'm what you know, like I think that's kind of the the ego gets fed that yeah. way. Not you know. Um uh our uh 
reviewer, external reviewer who has yet to appear on this podcast, uh, probably because he hates us, is right. uh, <laughs> he, he said that, you know, a supervisor here is probably setting up a dangerous dynamic. Um, you know, rather than warning Tim that sis is below average, it'd probably be more appropriate to approach it by talking to both parties. Uh, hey, advising Tim like, hey, that sis is a relatively new medic. Um, and I think that you as a medic student have a good opportunity to work with them as a team and make sure that you can make sure that they have a you have a good handle on any like of the critical BLS aspects of a call. And you can offer value, valuable advice if something's getting missed. I like that, that is approach. sort of saying like, yeah, hey, I am giving I'm empowering you uh, as a phenomenal BLS provider and saying like he's new, he might miss some of those critical aspects because he's got a you know brand new toolbox that he's got to look at. Um, and then likewise, he could say, you know, conversation with the uh, sis, the paramedic, Hey, Thames is a strong EMT uh, with some experience on some critical calls and you should feel comfortable asking him his opinion. Uh, if you get anything that you haven't dealt with yet, uh, because you know, you, but you both are going to work together very well. And then that sort of sets you up to cover those things without doing the, like, <laughs> this guy's a piece of shit. Watch out. Like, <laughs> so anyway, uh, yeah, let's talk about the system now. Uh, so the service that Tem and Sis are working for is 99 Problems Ambulance Company. Uh, 99Ps is a private ambulance service with about 20 cars on over a 24-hour period. Okay. Uh, the Cruiser Medic EMT with some e EMTs able to get endorsements to perform IV starts. Like um, Tem. You like Tim. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the crews work 12 hour shifts and typically run five to eight calls uh, in that period. Uh, they do a fair amount of interfacility or uh, stretcher transports and the crews on duty. Uh, they rotate through who's up for 911. So if okay. you just did a 911, chances are uh, you're going to be assigned to interfacilities. Uh, following that for several rounds before you'd go back up for 911. Wow. That's an interesting situation uh, depending. Huh. Yeah. Interesting. So this service does have stations that they can uh, post at uh, in various parts of their ambulance service area. And the area that they serve is suburban slash small cities. Okay. Uh, regarding hospitals, uh, heavy sigh. <laughs> uh, there are, there are many, but there are two that come into play for this call. The closest hospital is a level three trauma center. That is basically, it's not the trauma <clears throat> hospital. It's not set up to do high level traumas. It's set up to handle just like regular ER stuff. Uh, plus like cath lab things. Uh, they are not there. Like, this is not the hospital. that's going to be like, all right, crack the chest. Gotcha. Okay. So, uh, there is a trauma center, uh, that is equipped to take those patients, uh, from the scene that it's about like a 25 to 30 minute drive. The closest hospital is about a 10 minute drive. Uh, those will be important to this call. Also pertinent to this call. There is no protocol or policy at this service that mandates trauma patients be transported to the highest level trauma center. Uh, this is uh. at best a soft expectation. You might be wondering why I'm telling you this, given that this was not a trauma call. Uh, mm. I, no, it is. Okay. It is. 
<laughs> well, it I don't is. know anything about this call. We were still talking about the system. All right. So there is an ALS fire department and the paramedics for the fire department tend to participate in calls. Um, their value kind of uh, as participants, it depends on the provider. Uh, but for the most part, they're described as well, uh, like d- decent providers. Um, this area does have a specific rule regarding who is PIC on calls. And essentially it is the minute the patient is on the ambulance stretcher is the minute that 99 paramedics or 99 problems paramedic <laughs> is in charge of the patient. That's so, terribly uh, uncommon. Yeah. All right. So uh, here we are. The call. Uh, So this call starts five and a half hours into an overnight 12 hour shift. Tem and Sis are posted up at one of their stations. Uh, They are currently one of two ambulance. Yo, sorry. That's pretty broad. Overnight basically just means it ends at sometime after midnight. Right. So. Yes. So what time is this during the day? 1113 p.m. All right. 1113. Perfect. Yeah. (laughs) And 47 seconds. And 47 seconds. No, 46. Come on. Jesus, Chris. Uh, So they are currently one of two ambulances available uh, in their service area, while the other ambulance is uh, posted at a station across town. Uh, Prior to now, they had run a few, uh, we'll call them ho-hum calls, uh, but really, you know, nothing of note. Um, So they do hear the fire department get dispatched out to a single vehicle rollover with ejection. Uh, the roadway that this happened on is a residential road uh, that they do know, they recognize. It has a sharp turn. Mm-hmm. Uh, the caller for this call was a passerby who's reporting that one of the passengers is under the vehicle uh, and that there possibly is a occupant entrapped inside the vehicle. Uh, so okay. in the system, fire gets dispatched sir- first, then EMS. But uh, before the ambulance even gets dispatched, the aforementioned supervisor, uh, who happens to be working, uh, requests that a second ambulance also be dispatched and adds themselves as a supervisor responding to the scene. Uh, and that is a non-transporting uh, asset. So okay. uh, supervisors responding solo. Uh, the supervisor's name for the episode is Incident Commander, shortened to Ick. Oh God, that's not good. Oh yeah. man. <clears throat> All right. So yeah, uh, we've got Tem, Sis, and Ick. Here we go. Uh, the address uh, for the call is about four minutes away from their station. Uh, Sis does tell Tem as they go in route, lights and sirens. Uh, this one might actually be serious. Yeah, oh, mm-hmm. sounds good. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Tem is driving, and they do discuss like trauma triage and uh, prioritizing getting the more critical patient off the scene first with SIS. Uh, um, uh, and with the proximities of the hospitals to the scene that they're responding to, air medical is not a consideration because okay. it's, yeah. All right. So, Chris, what would your thoughts be as you're traveling to the scene? Uh, we have an ALS fire department en route, as well as a supervisor and another ambulance. Uh, and the other ambulance is probably like 15 minutes away. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I like a lot of the things that they're actually talking about, too. So one of the things I like to consider when we're going to the scene is I really start considering I start thinking about resources right off the bat. Right. Because. Yeah. If you need extra resources, getting them started sooner rather than later is good, especially when we're talking about trauma calls. Because when it comes to trauma, especially when we're talking about the uh, the potential for the potential need for you know the OR, um, getting people off scene quickly is a priority. 
you know, th- this is one of the few scenes where we talk about, hey, load and go is a thing we want to do. So I kind of like what they're talking about, because even though we have a single vehicle rollover with injection, it kind of sounds like there may only be one patient. Who knows how many patients are in that vehicle? And yeah. so they start talking about, hey, getting the most serious, you know, like getting the most serious patient uh, out of there first, those kind of things. So while I haven't heard anything specifically about requesting additional um, resources, uh, it does seem like their mind is there, especially if they're also thinking about like, hey, is air medical something we want to do? And it's not because it's just it's yeah. not going to save them a lot of time, which is which is a yeah. good call. Um, so, no, so far I'm, I'm, I'm tracking, I'm, I'm picking up what they're putting down and I kind of have the same thoughts. What kind of resources am I going to need? This is serious. Um, let's kind of talk through more of our scene logistics, you know, and those kind of things. So, yeah, yeah. I kind of have the same thoughts that they do so far. Yeah, I think the supervisor uh, on at this point was you know right on the money. It's like, hey, there's two patients. One's probably very critical. Oh, I'm sorry. There, the, there's a mention of, of two patients. Yeah, so there's oh, I one that. who. Oh, okay, yeah. The, okay, so uh, my whole my whole pa- diatribe about about where I said I think there's one patient, but maybe there's more. I'm going to change that to say, hey, there's definitely more than one patient. So I'm glad they're thinking about resources. All right. <laughs> yeah. No, there's Disregard. one person. One person under the vehicle and one person possibly entrapped inside. Uh, so the supervisor adding a second ambulance is a good call in this uh, yeah. in this moment. So uh, Sis and Tem's ambulance fall in behind the Code 3 fire engine and they arrive on scene uh, altogether in short order. Uh, the, dis- the scene is described as a two lane residential road with a car, uh, a uh, 90s problem Mustang. Uh, that happens to be resting on its side on top of a crushed wooden fence just off the side of the road. Gotcha. From the appearance, it looked like the car failed to make a turn in time and uh, crashed into the fencing landing, I guess, sideways. Now, is this like a cedar fence? Is this painted pine? What kind of wood Ooh, are we talking about? No, I, I totally thought about that. And I was like, cedar maybe, but it might be a little too soft. I don't know. Like a cedar Cedar's fencing a hard, good. I thought cedar was a harder wood. I thought cedar was a soft wood. Mm, I think cedar to the Google machine. <laughs> we right. need to know this he, before we get like pine, poplar. Those are all uh, oh, pine. Things. That's yeah, what I was pine's thinking. A soft yeah. Wood. yeah. Uh, cedar. Okay. Yeah. Cedar's hardwood. It's porous. Okay. Um, yeah. Cedar's definitely hardwood. Okay. Yeah. Mm. Would it be good to have a fence made out of porous wood? If you seal it, it's fine. All right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, just, okay. it's going to take more sealant because it's more porous, but yeah, you can do it. Totally. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Cedar's okay, beautiful. So that's the thing. That's wh- why. They, that's why people have like cedar cedar shakes on their roof. I'm I'm gonna go with not cedar because given that people know this turn, uh, yeah. I'm betting that the homeowner has probably had to deal with this fence a few fucking times. Yeah. And at this point, they're just like, I don't know, what's the cheapest, ugliest wood? Uh, probably gonna be what they call uh, <laughs> uh, SPF. SPF stands for uh, spruce, pine, uh, or fir. In other words. These are just all the cheap softwoods, and they'll write SPF because, like, I don't know. We didn't mark which one it was, but uh, there gotcha. you go. Okay. And that's SPF. what it is. Yeah. yeah. It's an F- uh, SPF fence. Okay. There you go. All right. Uh, yeah. So uh, it looked, again, <laughs> like the car failed to make the turn uh, and is crashed into this fencing, now resting on its side. Uh, from the road, the crew can see the underside of the car. Uh, the side of the road is described as flat. The weather, by the way, is dry and the temperature is about a cool 40 to 50 degrees Fahrenheit mm-hmm. or for our Celsius people, 4.4444 degrees Celsius to 10 degrees Celsius. Hmm. So, yeah. Perfect. All right. Uh, there are a sea of police cars, uh, on scene as well. And, uh, Tem does tell sis as they park, like the rig 
is uh, they're like, hey, uh, I've parked it in a way that this is easy to get to the trauma hospital uh, if we need to. Um, we don't know if sis hears that uh, because they don't respond. So, okay. Yep. That's uh, perfect. Yeah. Uh, so Tim and sis grab their stretcher and their jump bag. Uh, their jump bag has their airway, IVIO meds and bandaging as well as their monitor. And they head over to where the police tell them that the patient is uh, patient as in singular, by the way, uh, police tell them that there is only one patient and he is trapped under the vehicle. Uh, thankfully, by the way, no other occupants are present for this call. Uh, they did look, uh, and see no one else in the car. So, um, let's talk about the patient. The sole patient, uh, for this scene presents lying supine on the ground, partially under their, uh, car. Uh, the car is covering everything distal to, uh, the patient's pelvis, uh, but the patient's abdomen, chest, upper extremities, and head are accessible. Okay. Uh, Tem jumps uh, down to the patient's side and starts an assessment. Uh, the patient is estimated to be in their mid twenties. They're about five foot nine and 150 pounds, or 1.75 meters and 68 kilograms. They are wearing a hoodie that is tied down tightly, which will have to be cut through. Okay. All right. So here we go for their primary assessment. GCS. The patient is a three on the GCS scale. They are not responsive. Uh, Mm -hmm. regarding exsanguination, there is no obvious bleeding that is visualized outside of the body. Okay. (laughs) And, uh, airway, their airway appears to be patent. Uh, there's no strider grunting, snoring, or gurgling heard, uh, for breathing. The patient is breathing agonally at about four a minute. Circulation. There is a strong palpable radial pulse at about 100 beats per minute. So, Chris, here we are. This is the patient that we have so far. We haven't cut and covered them, but we've gotten a quick uh, exsanguination airway breathing circulation uh, assessment. What are your thoughts? What are your priorities for this scene? Well, okay. So, clinically, I I know a lot of people are like, oh, my God, they're breathing agonally in four minutes. We need to jump in and ventilate. Um, Correct. First thing, scene safety. Mm. Uh, Cars were not designed to, uh, to rest on their tops. Uh, or on their sides, they were designed to to rest uh, on their uh, on their tires, mm. and th- this car is not correct. Yes, no, this yeah. car is resting on a SPF fence. Right. Well, right, but it's upside down. Right? Uh, well, it's uh, I mean, it's on its side, so two of four tires are on the ground. Oh well, never mind yeah. then. Don't worry about it. This is safe. No, I'm just yeah. kidding. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> but you also have to you also have to watch out. Gasoline could be leaking. There's chemicals. There's a lot of different things. So keep your head on a swivel. Uh, and just, uh, you know, make sure you keep yourself safe. But when it comes to patient care, it says, no, uh, you know, we have no obvious bleeding visualized, but we have to remember half this patient is covered. Yeah. Uh, we can't see half this patient. So no obvious bleeding visualized, but that doesn't mean there isn't any uh, obvious bleeding. But now here comes the second thing. Even if there was, what could you do about it anyway? You know, like even if you could be like, hey, there's a bunch. Of, I, I think there's a bunch of blood creeping out from the car. If you can't get to the patient, you can't get to the patient. And it's this fine. is it's kind brake of fluid. Yeah. <laughs> Transmission fluids usually kind of red. So, you know, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's what it is. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. So uh, anyway, yeah, maybe that's just what it is. Yeah. So, yeah, then just get a refusal and go. But um, 
in the meantime, so we have a patient is, a, you know, breathing agonally at four a minute. This is the thing that needs to be corrected that you can do something about now. Um, so what I would say is take your personnel, get somebody with a BVM and start assisting breaths. And then we need to start figuring out our circulation status beyond, hey, I've got a palpable radial pulse yeah. uh, here. We need to figure it out yeah. beyond that. Um, now, which yeah. is... It, that's not bad at all. Getting a radial pulse and 100 BPM, that's a good first move. But let's start getting a blood pressure on this person. If we need lighting, let's get lighting and see if we can see a skin condition. But we need to really figure out, do we need to start loading this patient up uh, with fluids? Because depending on the amount of compression going on on the uh, lower half of the body, uh, you know, we may not need as much volume. <laughs> and uh, But uh, sure. anyway... Uh, so yeah, so we need to do a better assessment. Uh, we need to do, do, I don't want to say better to imply that what they've done is bad. It's not so far. This is a good initial, I walked up assessment, but, um, yeah, we need to get, get a handle on, on the circulation. So we know the breathing is yeah. bad. Immediately assign somebody to that. Start working on circulation. Uh, I did like that. They looked for exsanguination first, uh, because remember in trauma, it's X, A, B, C, any yeah. major bleeding. You stop now. Now, a lot of people ask, like, well, what's the difference between... Because a lot of people get confused. Like, oh, so now we're doing, like, CAB, circulationary breathing? No, not necessarily. Exsanguination specifically refers to massive hemorrhage that must be controlled. And the reason is, is because, you know, for a while, we always focus on airway and breathing first. Because, well, hey, like, it only takes a few minutes of hypoxia and you're done. Well, if you have significant bleeding... It only takes a few minutes of bleeding out and you're done. And here's the nice thing about yeah. hypoxia. You can correct it. We can reoxygenate. Doesn't mean you won't have a lasting injury from that, but we can reoxygenate. If yeah. you're out of blood, I can't fix that. I mean, Two we can scoop it up from the dirt and try and put it back <laughs> in. You. put it back in. But yeah. it, uh, your it's body hard. doesn't like that either. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's hard. <laughs> so I don't like doing it. It's sort but of no, like it, when you mix diesel and gas. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Uh, Okay, but in all seriousness, you know, like if you're out of blood, you're done. That's it. The two units that flight probably carries is not going to fix that. Yeah. Yeah. So, Um, yeah. So that's why we focus on exsanguination. Then we move to airway breathing. And now when we're talking about circulation, presuming that exsanguination is either not present or we fixed it. Now we're talking about like, okay. Do we have good radial pulses? Are, are we able to start, you know, are, are we good to start replacing that volume that's missing if it's there? Do we need to do other things to adjust circulation? So that's kind of the difference. We're kind of breaking up circulation into two, spot, in, into two spots and dealing with the most critical exsanguination before we deal with anything else. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like your approach. Um, you know, you said, uh, by the way, correction, half the body, uh, according to the rule <laughs> of nines the legs and uh, below would be 18, 18 times two, right? So 36, so 36% of the body under the car. Uh, no, you're forgetting the genitals. That's uh well, wait, it depends on the genitals. I, I don't know if point. he's, I don't know if the genitals are covered. Uh, this, okay. But is this oof. male or female? This is a male patient, male patient. So there could be an extra 1% in there. <laughs> there could be an extra 1%. Okay. You're right. <laughs> and also just, yeah. So, uh, I mean, yeah. 36 percent uh and 37 you're right like 37 okay uh <laughs> nice yeah. um but if you can't like if you think like hey that transmission fluid that's weird uh coming out of a 90s problem mustang uh uh maybe you can throw a tourniquet up high on the leg uh in the meantime if you're presuming oh, I didn't know that the legs were i didn't know any part of the legs were exposed 
I, I all I know is that the pelvis is visible, so I'm assuming that maybe there's yeah. a little wiggle room. But hey, if, you know if what? You can access, if we you weren't can there. access, yeah. If you can yeah. access a spot, you know, I mean, here's what I would do. I mean, again, going back to that circulation, if you assess the circulation and you're like, hey, you know, this patient may be bleeding out, and you have access to high legs, even if you can't see them, fuck it, throw two tourniquets on them. Yeah, you know, throw a tourniquet uh, on each leg. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, uh, I think your idea of like, Hey, let's, let's do this. Let's make sure, you know, like, like focus on the ventilation after scene safety, uh, making sure that nothing's sanguinating and then, you know, work on trying to, you know, make sure, Hey, do we, what are his vitals, uh, and whatnot? Do we need to do any other, you know, life, uh, life yeah. interventions prior to, uh, getting him out of there? But I think mm-hmm. the focus really is like, Hey, we're going to do this stuff fire people you work on getting him out of here and making sure right. that this doesn't collapse on him because boy that would look dumb or us or us um yeah, yeah. and, and here's, right. here's the other thing I, I would caution you may not have the appropriate ppe to be close to this patient you know th- th- yeah. think about that if you don't have a helmet maybe you shouldn't be i mean I, again i'm not on this scene but think about that yeah i want to yeah. help but you know it, are, are parts going to fly am i going to get hit in the head etc cetera, etc cetera. so if you don't have the appropriate ppe to be in the situation then don't be in that situation yeah anyway we'll be on. over here uh let us know when the nos explodes yeah <laughs> all exa- right. exactly all right so uh tem no! asks us <laughs> right all right, so Tem, who's at the patient's side and has given us this uh, lovely uh, primary assessment, asks Sis, who's just behind him and apparently talking to the fire department crew, hey, I need you to grab me a BVM. Uh, Tem then works on exposing more of the patient. Uh, they cut through the hoodie and discover that there's a large laceration, approximately since six inches or 15 centimeters, uh, on the patient's right anterior neck. Uh, the wound appears to be like subcutaneous layer of fat deep and is not currently bleeding. Uh, so sis has fetched the BVM and monitor, uh, but is now talking to Ick, the supervisor and uh, the fire department crew who have again, just kind of all walked up. Um, and so Tem says like they called out to sis several times about the BVM before they finally came over and then set down the BVM and the monitor next to Tem. So they know. Um, so so is Tem? Let me get. Tem's the only person working on the patient at this point. At this point, yes. Tem is the uh, only person working on the helpful. patient because their partner is talking to uh, the providers behind them. Tem says to their partner like a few more times, like, hey, "No, you need to bag the patient because uh, they are again cutting and uh, exposing the patient." Uh, before Sis finally complies and kind of realizes, like, "Oh." Yeah, I should be bagging this patient. Uh, yeah. So they start to do that. However, at this point, Sis also realizes that uh, they brought over the BVM, but they did not bring over any O2. Uh, so they yell to the fire crew uh, to grab their O2 bottle off the stretcher, which is about 10 feet away. Um, fun fact, that will not happen. Um, hey, did anyone think of just grabbing your kits and bringing all the kits to the patient? Did anyone consider that instead of just picking I mean, out gr- bits and pieces? <laughs> did anybody did consider grab- that? Uh, yeah, I mean, okay, that, that, that should have been considered by Tim. It should have been considered by sis. Should have been considered by everybody out. Grab the I, same fucking kits every single time. So everything you need is there. So as you uncover yeah. your patients and you discover new things, you do not have to run back and forth to your fucking ambulance to go get them or rely on other people to run back and go get them. Yep. All right. So, cause we, how many times have we run into this on this damn show? Yeah. 
I yeah. brought a handful of things that I thought I would need and it ended up being a problem. Yeah, exactly. And here's the thing, carrying it in 99 times when you didn't need it is worth it to save you from that one time that you will. It is worth it. Well, hey, I mean, half credit or 37% credit because they brought <laughs> no them on the stretcher uh, no and credit. just left the stretcher and all that 10 feet away. Uh, so, mm, no, all right. Fair enough. No. Nope. Okay. So I, I do want to comment because there are there are probably some people who are going like, what the fuck is wrong with sis? Um, and I because like mm. sis is the paramedic and they are yeah. not participating or haven't yet so far. And I but wanna, nobody is. Sorry. Go ahead. I, well, no, Tem is. Tem is down there. Tem doing is, but the firefighters care. are. Nobody else is. Yeah. Nobody it's else is. And everybody else. So I want to. I want to. I want to address that because I think there's two possible interpretations that I can see from these actions. Um, the first would be that CIS isn't recognizing the critical aspects of this call because one, they either don't have the educational uh, or like knowledge foundation to recognize it or two, they just don't care. Um, but I think the other interpretation uh, is, and the, the one that's most likely is this is that they are just plain overwhelmed at this point by the critical nature of this scene and this patient. The intensity of this call has overwhelmed their ability to think and plan clearly, and they are failing to act because of this. Um, the, and I, I, there's a couple things that I think add to this. There's an unwritten rule or code uh, or like culture in EMS, which basically says like, hey, we responders don't get to be overwhelmed. We don't have the luxury of that. We are expected to think clearly and act in any crisis that we find mm -hmm. ourselves in and we have to perform. Um, and if we're supposed to be in charge, we must be in charge, even if we are in a psychologically or physiological state which prevents us from doing that. Um, so, well, like we have a lot of training about how to work through those. Um, that That's one of those. I think that's just one of those educational pieces where there's a disconnect until you get enough of those calls where you have to work through it or where you get to see someone else walk through it. And I think th this is one of those moments where sis could have been like, wow, Jesus, this is serious. Uh, you know, like someone like we need a PIC, um, you know, like, Hey, supervisor help out. But like, there isn't, there just isn't any mechanism on the scene that really allows for that. Um, and I, I think that that's kind of what's happening here is like the fact that they're like, uh, they're not moving towards the patient to start doing patient care that they're grabbing a BVM, but failing to like, yeah, they're grabbing a BVM and a monitor. But not <laughs> doing like, it. Yeah. And so then they're grabbing handing a it to their, their partner. Equipment. Yeah. Yeah. Like here, do, am I helping like th this is like and failing to do the like, oh, mm -hmm. if I'm grabbing a BVM, they'll need oxygen. You know, like that. That all just to me spells overwhelmed. I, I don't know what the fire department is doing in this. Uh, You know, t Tem's partner is, you know, like Tem is noticing their partner because that's that's sure. who they work with. But the fire yeah. department might be doing things where they're like, hey, let's figure out how we stabilize the car so that we can get this guy out or yeah, whatnot. But um. Well, yeah. here's kind of what I get. So how many how many fire apparatus do we have on scene? Uh, one, possibly two, because uh, there's the engine that responded. Maybe there's another one. I don't know. So we're not sure. Uh, we're not sure how many we have at this point. We are not sure how many we have at this okay. point. Yeah. So we have at least probably four. Uh, <laughs> for firefighters? Yes. Yes. I, I'm okay. saying well, I definitely know we have at least a uh, 
Yeah, we'll have at least okay. four at this I moment. Yeah, four. Okay, at this moment, I have at least four, maybe eight, but let's say four. I have Tem, I have Sis, I have a supervisor. So Ick. I have seven. I have what? Ick is the supervisor. Ick is the supervisor. Ick. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, have, yeah. Uh, I have Ick. All right. So I have seven people on scene. Yeah. Correct? Yes. One person is doing patient care. Yeah. This is not a problem with just Sis. There yeah. is not enough on the scene to require six people to be ineffective, not necessarily ineffective, but there's not enough things on the scene to require six people to do nothing while one person does patient care. This is not a cis problem. What cis's problem is, is what cis appears to me to be avoidant at this point, because I think you're yeah. right. I, I actually really liked what you had to said about silently drowning in their own panic. And what cis appears to be doing is trying to find a place to be where they're not in the line of fire per se. In other words, where they're not yes. going to be relied upon. And we looked up and, and we see, well, hey, here's these other responders sitting around talking about other stuff. I'm going to participate by being involved in this thing over here because it's less scary. And so <laughs> I think we're being avoidant. He's and Kyle directing traffic. Like, don't worry, guys. I got this. <laughs> 100%. That's exactly what it is. And so, or, or that's what it, what it seems like to me. So I feel like SIS is being avoidant. The fire department, is, the fire department and the supervisor is giving SIS plenty of places to be avoidant into, and nobody's really focusing on this patient aside from Tem. And so, yeah, SIS SIS makes mistakes here. I mean, yeah. throwing throwing a BVM at Tem and and not doing anything with it and bringing a monitor and not bringing their equipment over. And again, like, I don't give a shit that the ambulance is only 10 feet away. If you were in the back of the ambulance working on a patient, you want stuff where you can reach it. Why does that change where suddenly you're out in the field? And yeah. so, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm frustrated. This whole call is, is frustrating. Everybody in this call right now is frustrating me a little bit, even Tem a little bit. And I'll, right. I'll say why in, in, in a little bit. I, th I think Tem's the best of the group right now. But we also got the call from Tim. But yeah. uh, I think uh, they're kind of the best of the group right now. Um, but yeah, I'm not really satisfied with any of it. There's an immediate life threat that nobody but one person is is attending to. And uh, and yeah, so anyway, that's that's what I think. I think Sis is being avoidant. I think everyone else is being equally avoidant, um, right. or at least or at least not focusing uh, where they should. Because if you have another engine in route. Uh, I can almost guarantee you're going to wait for them to move this massive car anyway. So why don't you stick some, stick some firefighters on it? Why is no one yeah. looking at the, at, at the patient, but one person? Yeah. All right. So no, I, I, everyone's in trouble with me right now. All right. All right. So uh, for perspective, uh, <laughs> the, like this is just like within the first few moments of showing up. Um, and so like, this isn't, you know, like, cause uh, just for placing where we're at in the story uh it's taken several times for sis to finally kind of cue into the fact that they need to provide positive pressure ventilation and yeah. then even once they do that they're like no 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 you have to be the one to do it because i'm still doing an assessment on the patient uh so sis is now at the point where they are starting to provide positive pressure uh ventilations to the patient tem is focused on uh addressing the uh, large wound that they found that isn't bleeding, but uh, had at some point been bleeding because there's a pool Ooh. of about 500 mils of uh, blood inside the hoodie. Um, I want to talk about again. Uh, it's on their anterior right neck. Um, anterior and, right neck. Okay. Yeah. And I do want to point out like there is no swelling or subcutaneous air that is appreciated um, uh, around okay. the neck or the chest in that area. Um, there's no air that seems to be leaking out with positive pressure ventilations. Uh, 
So uh, anyway, they get that bandaged and they continue working on cutting the rest of the hoodie off. But Chris, it's at this point, one of the firefighters, an AEMT, I'm calling Lur, shouts out, the patient is not breathing, starting CPR. (laughs) And then they kneel down next to the patient and start performing chest compressions on the patient. Um, And... Uh There are, I, I've experienced this several times in my career where something happens and you are so stunned that you think I must have done something wrong. I must have Uh, missed something. I have missed something completely because this doesn't make sense. And this is where Tim finds themselves in this moment because they're like, what, what did, what changed? I, I don't understand. Why are we doing compressions on this guy? But they start to kind of go with it because that's like why why wouldn't we you you know what i mean like obviously this person knows something i don't (laughs) exactly um and so at this point while compressions are just starting ick the medic supervisor uh says from i guess in the background hey guys let's just work a few rounds and then call it uh basically because this is a trauma code with a patient entrapped under the car um so okay chris we have and by the way, this is just the start of an amazing EMS 2020 episode happening. It's a the all start of three here. episodes. <laughs> um, at a minimum. With the caveat that uh, we weren't there, uh, what what do you think would be the main culprit that is going wrong with this scene right now? No PIC. And I think okay. you knew I was yeah. going to say that. There's no leadership. I, 100%. Um, yeah, yeah there, there, there's really no leadership. You have Tem, who's kind of trying to lead uh, from a point of also doing everything because nobody else is. No one's really focusing on the patient. And everyone seems to be kind of coming in. It, it looks like it's almost reminds me of a scenario of like, all right, there's a mannequin on the floor. We're going to have students one by one come in and run the scenario by themselves. Because what this looks like, right? There, we have a yeah. patient and people are one by one coming in and everyone seems to be running a different patient right now. <laughs> Right. Because Tem comes in and okay, my slight anger, this is very slight anger with Tem. So Tem, don't you're you you are I'm mad you at mostly everybody first. else. Yeah. Fuck well, you, I'm, Tem. Fuck you, Tem. <laughs> no more birthdays. Um anyway. Uh but Tem, you know, to Tem, you you you're actually doing the best out of everybody. I'm not really that mad at you. I, I kind of take it back. But if I was in Tem's spot, the change I'd make is, is I would loudly, there are times to get loud. This is one of them. Hey guys, we have a patient who's agonally breathing here. I need your help and we have to focus on this patient. If it's bad, if I was on scene, because I've actually had nightmare, like literal wake up from nightmares where I have a group of people who just won't move on a critical patient. <laughs> I've had those literal nightmares before. Yes. And so this yes. is a very triggering call because this is my nightmare where I'm trying to get everyone to, to fucking, you know, pull your head out of your ass and help me because I can't can't do this by myself and they're not that is when i would probably start getting loud hey Ooh. guys this patient needs our help get him to work because my problem is is this is so obvious that we should be focusing i'm i'm angry really angry and i'm hoping it's not just the beer speaking but uh i'm this call is triggering me left and right because it is so obvious that this patient needs our concentration and so obvious that we don't need to be focusing on anything. Yes, we do need to focus on getting the car off of them. But if we have a second unit in route or the second unit's there, we have enough people to work on this guy now and he needs it now and he does not need one person. And it is not Tem's fault all by themselves. The only thing I can fault Tem for is not being loud enough to everybody. Hey, everyone, this patient's dying. We have a chance to save them. 
you guys need to focus and say yeah. it. And it's hard when you're temp because you're the EMT, right? And you're yeah. your paramedic partner. Yeah. But in what Tim did do when Tim focused just on talking to sis, if I was going to have sis do anything, sis should cut, I should bag. Because we've talked about being PIC. Sis should be the one being PIC. If we're only communicating with sis, then, you know, if they're going to be anything, they should be the PIC. Uh, and it's better to be cutting off clothes and assessing as a PIC than it is to be focusing on bagging. That yes. would be my, own, my, my, my only change. What you're describing is like, this is like trying to herd cats, you know, and all yeah. these cats, you know, uh, and these are all cat names, uh, you know, really, when you think about it. Uh, <laughs> you have a cat weird. named Sis and Tem? I, I don't know. Why not? Meow. Lure Meow. makes sense, I guess. Yeah. Uh, yeah, lure does make sense. Uh, yeah, but like you're trying to, I think that's the, the problem is you're, you're right. Like Tem is in the position where he recognizes the, the critical nature of the, of the, the patient. And he's the only one really trying to make headway into treating that. And all these other cats are, you know, like chasing laser pointers and they're not that no one else is lasered yeah. in to the fact that this this patient is sick. Okay. And some yeah. are chasing laser pointers. Some are doing fuck all. <laughs> well, you know, one guy, I don't know. One guy's got the, the ball in the thing and he's doing compressions and he's chasing that. Yeah. Around, so, yeah. so and here's the worst thing about this is like what I'm worried about now, Spence, and, and, and I'm just going nightmare fuel here is as far as I know, this patient has a pulse is not arrested, does not need CPR. They need respiratory support. Right. I mean, yeah. you and I are on the same page there. Yep. But let's let's take it a step further, though. Now we've got a supervisor chiming in, Ick, being like, hey, guys, let's work a few rounds. And my worry is now the group thinks this is an arrest. And I don't know about you, but my trauma arrest protocol say to start punching holes in the chest. Yeah. Could you imagine starting to punch holes in a chest of a guy who definitely does not need it? I mean, or at we least don't as know. far as we know, at <laughs> yeah, least as far as, far as we, we know. know. Yeah. But I mean, like, do they have yeah. a trauma arrest protocol? Uh, no. So like the best that they have is like, Hey, if your patients, uh, if you have a trauma patient who's going into shock, consider tension pneumothorax, they don't actually have a like, Hey, you, your trauma patient has arrested. Here's this what you what should you do. do. Okay. Yeah. Um, that might so, be for the better uh, in, in yeah. this one call. That's for the better. Generally speaking yeah. as a system. No, it's not, but uh, <laughs> for this I, one I, call, I, yeah. we're fucking uh, up. Yeah. All yeah. right. Cool. All right. Uh, yeah. So several compressions later, uh, uh, Lur stops compression compressions because the patient, uh, just gasps, uh, and startles the everyone really, uh, except for Tem who goes like, okay, this, I, they're pretty sure they're alive, which side note here, not necessarily. I've gone on plenty of people who are asystolic and gasping. Uh, that gasping yeah. doesn't mean they're alive, but this sort of is one of those moments where like Tim kind of regains, like, wait a minute, they had a pulse when I last checked. So they check a carotid pulse on the uncut side of the patient's neck and boom, it's there. Uh, so yeah. they say, Hey, still there, uh, by the way. Yeah, guys, uh, he does have a pulse and it's strong. Um, but because it was kind of like a code was starting, they do have the defibrillator pads out. Uh, and so they finish placing those pads on the patient's chest and their partner says, Hey man, go grab a backboard. So, uh, Tem leaves to go get a backboard. Uh, as Tem returns with the backboard from the ambulance, the firefighters essentially like lift or tilt. I, I'm not sure. I'm not a firefighter. I don't know. There, there, maybe there's a, you know, it's like, Oh, we pulled the McBurney's, 
car tilt maneuver. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so that either way. As a, as get, a previous volunteer firefighter, the McBurney's car tilt maneuver is totally what we use. Yeah. That's <laughs> nice. Nice. I, yeah. uh, I know enough. To like, I know survival firefighter, I guess, would be the <laughs> like, oh, yeah, McBurney's uh, car removal tilt uh, maneuver. Yep. <clears throat> nah, it works. That's fine. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> How do I say in firefighter, I'd like a beer, my friend will pay? That's. <laughs> <laughs> oh, hydrant. <laughs> nice, First nice. in, last out. Yeah. Yep. And then you walk away. All right. All right. So. Uh, Challenge coin. <laughs> Challenge coin. There it is. Thin yeah. red line. <laughs> so they tilt. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> You broke me, damn it. All right. Uh, so enough of the car is tilted or lifted to, that allow the patient to be extricated, i.e. just pulled out and onto the backboard. Uh, they get moved directly onto the backboard. Manual stabilization of C-spine is maintained by one of the many firefighters on scene, unnamed firefighter on scene at this point. Um, the patient is secured with spider straps onto the board. Uh, quick note, no one assessed the patient's back. Um Probably would have been worthwhile, but I, yep. yeah, I get it. Um, once the patient is moved out onto the stretcher, uh, Tem notices that this is when the BVM gets connected to oxygen because that's where it wasn't before. Is, yeah. They didn't bring it. And uh, they kind of recognize like, oh, yeah, sis uh, asked for oxygen, but it never came. So mm-hmm. um, anyway, uh, the bottle gets set to 15 liters per minute. Uh, the patient is moved into the ambulance and uh, paramedic firefighter Faye, uh, who is on scene as well, announces to the sis and Tem and Ick uh, that they will be writing in to assist with this patient. Systemic. That- I just got it. <laughs> <laughs> and that uh, firefighter lure will be accompanying them. Um, yeah. So uh, <laughs> nice. Do we nice. have to have firefighter lure? I mean, yeah, that- we have firefighter Faye and firefighter lure coming in. All right. So what should happen next? And what problems do you think this crew might encounter given what's <laughs> happened so far, Chris? Everything. Um, okay. <laughs> let me kind of recap in my own words. Come what we have going on. All right. Patient is now out from under the vehicle. They are on a backboard. There is a manual stabilization of the C-spine. Have we put a collar on yet? Uh, A collar does get put on in the ambulance, and the C-spine was maintained as they loaded them in. Okay, but at at this point where you were asking me what needs to happen next, we don't have a collar on? Uh, Let's say they do. They're in the ambulance. All these – there's going to be a plethora of – yep, collars on. All right, collars on. uh, Okay, cool. Collars on. The very next thing I do is now that we have the legs exposed – I want to redo a quick head to toe and double check for exsanguinations and any bleeding that needs to be controlled. Um, I know it would probably be obvious if I'm actually there, but I figure I want to ask the question at this point because there's some other things that I thought would be obvious that hasn't happened on this scene. So, uh, you know, uh, the very next thing I would do is now that we have the patient out from underneath the car and we can see the whole patient, let's do a once over. Since we have enough people, we can easily do this. Hey, you, whoever you is, do a head to toe. Look for bleeding, stop it if necessary. And yeah. for the rest of us, let's get a set of vitals. Yes. Yeah. So that's what I want. And I'm assuming we are, we're, we're BVMing this patient. Yes, we are still BVMing this patient. Okay. So what I want, all right. So let's get a set of vitals. Let's have some person be doing a head to toe and let's make sure that what we're actually doing with that BVM is going to be effective. If we have the people, and it certainly sounds like we fucking do. Uh, let's make sure we have somebody, uh, if we can, and we're still BVMing, let's have one person maintain a mass seal, one person squeeze the bag. Yeah. No, I, I think you're. this is a perfect moment. Like, it, 
this is a chance to kind of reset the chaos of the scene, yes. right? Like you're reset. in a different environment, you've got lights, that's a big, and it's not as loud or as, you know, car tilty on you perhaps as outside. Yeah. Um, this is a moment where uh, a person can establish themselves as PIC and start directing care. And, you know, there's going to be, this is going to be one where I, I, my anticipation would be that people have a lot of ideas and they're nervous given the chaos that previously happened. So there's going mm. to be people who are shouting out like, all right, I need to get an IV or, all right, we need to do this. But this is yep. the moment where you go like, guys, hold on. We need to get a, we need to know what is wrong with this patient. Make sure we are not missing any life threats. Let's get a head to toe assessment. Let's listen to lung sounds. Let's, let's get yeah. a baseline set of vitals because we're bagging this patient. We need to know if that is effective. If you know we're hitting the targets we need to, and then we can go from there, but yeah. do this well, first. Yeah. And here's the thing. You got four people, right? I mean, you actually have more. Are we driving yet? No, no, we are we are just in the back of the ambulance, and right. uh, yeah. <clears throat> so, so the way I do, I got four people. It's like, okay, uh, yeah, you go ahead and get that IV. You go ahead and do a thorough head to toe. You see bleeding, you stop it. Go ahead and get the monitor on them, guys. Let's get a quick set of vital signs and let's reevaluate this airway. Done. Yeah. Everyone's like, "Well, I'm gonna start getting a tube." You're gonna wait until you reevaluate this airway. I'm PIC. This is what I need to have done. Okay. Yeah. And if someone starts challenging it, be like, guys, we're we're gonna we're we are gonna lose more than we will gain if we're not organized. Yep. So yeah, and yeah. And, that, and that's fucking true every time. Yeah, every time. All right. Anyway, but yeah, no, I, I think what we need what you need to do now, someone needs to step into that PIC role, reset this scene. Yes. All anyway. right. Um well, uh drink up because uh, that doesn't happen. Uh, oh fuck. Mm, yeah. So uh Faye. Uh, takes up the uh, paramedic firefighter Faye sets up, uh, takes up the airway seat or the, you know, captain's chair, as it's often called uh, in the back of the ambulance and announced to the crew of system and lure uh, system failure, systemic failure. I got it. <laughs> I got it. That's not at all what it is. Uh, we need okay. to get an airway. Uh, <laughs> so sis uh, opens their jump kit and grabs out an eye gel, but is told by Faye, no, I want an ETT, an ET tube. So uh, let's take another quick sidetrack onto more system issues that uh, may or may not uh, definitely will uh, come into play. So 99 Problems Ambulance Service uses King Vision laryngoscopes. Uh, those are yeah. high angle laryngoscopes. While the fire yeah. department uses CMAX and these are standard angle like Mac blade angles. Yeah. Simply a put. C a CMAX, by the way, guys. Just think, take a standard direct laryngoscopy Mac blade, that's one with a slight curve, put a camera on the end of it and a monitor on top. That's it. Yep, that's it. Simply put, these different laryngoscopes require different techniques to use correctly. Entirely different techniques, even Very, different equipment. Yes. Um, and yeah. Hmm, yeah. Uh, <laughs> another thing to note as we discuss airway management for this patient is that this service, I, I don't believe anyone in this area has RSI, uh, nor does it allow for post intubation sedation. Um, uh, and per tem, the crews who have uh, administered sedatives outside of situations in which you're giving sedatives because your your life is at risk. Um, th those moments get very, very, very scrutinized by the hold, uh, hold, medical hold director. Up. Yeah. So not only is there no RSI, there's no post intubation sedation protocol. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Oh my so, god. 
Imagine how often intubation happens with that knowledge. Um, very rarely. Yeah. That, that, I mean, Very I don't rarely. know that I'm, I'm assuming I, Tim did not say like, oh, yeah, it could be that he's like, oh, I have tube every one a month. I fuck, that would be terrible, <laughs> especially with that sedation. Right. but, uh, if I were to apply what little I know of EMS, uh, broadly to this area, I'd be like, no, then what this means is that no one is doing that, uh, mm-hmm. except in dead people. Yeah, you have made you have made innovation uh, the you've made the reasons to innovate so rare the criticism the and scrutiny so high that no nobody would do this. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. All right. So, uh back into the call. Um so Tem at this point <clears throat> because Faye has said no, I want an ET, uh fetches out their king vision and hands it to Faye who starts prepping equipment. Um now remember Faye it does not use King Vision. Faye uses a C-Mac. Right. Keep that in mind. All right. Uh, so, Tim uh, is setting up for an IV start on the patient's left arm. Uh, they note that the patient is not on the monitor. Uh, so, they tell Lure, who's down at the patient's leg, hey, can you put the patient on the monitor? Um, and Sis uh, is adjacent to Faye up at the airway. Uh, and is assisting Faye in getting equipment set up. And Tem realizes at this point, no one is providing BVM respirations to the patient. Tem points this out to Sis, their partner, and says like, hey, are, are, you're not bagging the patient? And Sis responds, we just need to get an airway. I'm just upset. Um, yeah. I'm so upset that what I recommend for this crew is to head on over to flightbridgeed.com slash fast24 <laughs> and sign up for the pre-con uh, probate. It's a class that is uh, put on by Master Your Medics, and it talks about uh, how to appropriately prepare for innovations to result in better patient a- outcomes. And I'm pretty sure it's going to talk about a lot of stuff that you did not do. So head it over to fast 20, head it over to flightbridgeed.com slash fast24. Get signed up. It's going on June 10th through the 12th in Wilmington, North Carolina. I will definitely be there. Spencer won't because he sucks. Yeah. How's that uh, for product I, placement? <laughs> I, my hat's off to you. I, uh, uh, but okay. Yeah. Now I, it sounds like I'm, I'm joking or, or poking fun. Uh, I'm not because I literally, I, I do actually mean that I don't have to be fast 24. It should be, but I mean like, but the, the problem, the big problem here that I see is like, this is what happens. Everything that's going on right now is what happens when you set crews up for failure by not providing them the, like, Good training, the kind of training that you would receive at the Fast Twenty Four pre conventions um, or pre cons, pre conferences. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. No, this I, I mean, is, like, but but it's dude, true, right? I yeah, mean, no, we have made innovating people so impo- such an impossibly small window. You'd never hit it, uh, and like, there's no like the biggest problem here, right here. You and I have talked about this time and time again. RSI needs to stand for really slow induction, right? Like slow. Yeah. This down. This is, I think I said this about other episodes too. So people are going to think I'm just full of shit. But it's actually true. Um, I was actually telling you about it on my way from work. Because I got off work this morning before I headed to the studio, aka my house. Yeah. Uh, and um, I saw Spencer. We had a hell of an airway yesterday. And I, the crazy thing is, I started out using a C Mac and finished with a Glide Scope. 
at a kaleidoscope, it's not a king vision, but it's the same high angle thing. And the usage between them is so different, so amazingly different that you can, you simply cannot use it the same. You cannot pick up a high angle uh, laryngoscope and expect to use it correctly if if you have not been trained on how to use it. It's a different tool. It's like picking up a wrench when all you've ever used is a hammer. You know, I mean, you might yeah. think it's self-explanatory, but there's tricks and there, there's ways that'll make things successful. It's not. So anyway. <clears throat> yeah. Um, I, I, sorry, I think, go ahead. No, I think, I think you're right. I think this is one of those things where the system has set everyone up for failure. Mm-hmm. Um, this is, this is kind of like that old school, you know, like airway before everything else was like, no, we oh, can't. Yeah. yeah. Don't BVM because we need an airway and everything that we have learned basically goes counter to that now it's like no intubate once you have the patient able to survive that um this is yeah uh, and there's so many things we're going to talk about a lot of this at the end probably not all of it because fuck me there's (laughs) there's so much no there's so much but like the other thing too here man is is like this i don't even know I have seen no assessment of our BVMing in the first place. How good was our BVMing leading up to this point? Yeah. Is this an yeah. old call or is this recent? Uh, mm, th- this is post COVID. Okay. So. <laughs> I was going to say, actually, I should say, was it within the last 10 years? Because that's how dated <laughs> some of this shit is. Yeah. No, this but, is within the last 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, oof. All right. So uh, along with uh, Sis, Tem, Ick, Faye and Lur, uh, we have uh, three other firefighters uh, who just kind of fill in to the space in the back of the ambulance. They're sure. unnamed because the, they're, they're just there occupying space. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, they, there you go. They're part Probably of the environmental problem. Says. Yeah. <laughs> so Ick, the supervisor, is standing at the side door of the ambulance. And by the way, just letting this shit show happen, I guess. Like, mm, I, I have so yeah. many thoughts on this supervisor that may so be unfair uh, because sure. this is the lens of one call. But it's kind of telling if they are mm-hmm. like, if just you're not paying attention. Fail. Yeah. Like either you're. Mm, yeah. Mm, nah, all right. <clears throat> So, uh, yeah, like maybe they didn't hear the like, we just need an airway exchange, but they should be noticing that no one is providing positive pressure ventilation to this patient. So, mm, like are ignorant or bad. I, I don't know. And there's no difference to the patient because they're just getting fucked. That's that's mm, yeah. Right. Mm, anyway, so yeah. <laughs> uh, more on this. Faye asked for an 8.0 ETT. It's given the largest ETT that 99 Problems has, which is a seven and a half. Uh, no big deal there. Uh, we do know that the setup included having suction ready. They had a stylet out. They had the syringe. They had the entitled CO2 uh, device plugged into the monitor and set up and ready to go. So in regards, like in terms of Faye's setup, solid-ish in terms of the yeah. rest of the like, in terms of the equipment setup sure yeah um but yeah so uh before we move on to their attempt let's talk about Wait, the do they have a backup device uh like they a... do not have a backup device uh cool no so that that would be one piece that they definitely should have uh but yeah. won't okay uh, I, have, I, have, I have no faith in them getting this tube i mean they they, they might but i'm just <laughs> i have no faith in it happening 
yeah, put money on it because uh, you'll win. All right. So okay. let's talk about the secondary assessment that we have so far. Uh, we do know from Tem's position that the patient got on the monitor and Lure, uh, who's down at the feet, has cut the patient's pants to assess the legs. What they found about the legs, we don't know. We do know that the pants were cut. Um, so Tim basically was like, I don't remember. He might've said something, but everything was going bad at this point. Um, so yeah, uh, we do know, we also don't know about pelvic stability. That's another piece that could come into play here. Uh, the patient's chest is visibly bruised on the right side. No one has listened to lung sounds. The monitor isn't visible to anyone at the airway spot. Uh, but we do know that peri-intubation vitals from the monitor that Tem was able to visualize were a heart rate of 90 and an SpO2 of 80%. Cool. So, I'm assuming we're not denitrogenated at all because no one's begging for this person. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. All right, cool. I mean, 80% is pretty good if you're agonal, I guess. So, uh, Faye goes in for the intubation attempt and uh, presumably can visualize the cords. But as they try to advance their stylet-filled 7.5 ETT down the channeling of the King Vision, they quickly report that they are unable to advance the tube. Uh, Put a pin in this for our lessons for later because there's a reason that it won't work. Um, Gotcha. The King Vision. Really quick. I've used King Visions before in in terms of at a trade show only. I've never used one on a patient, so I'll make that clear. Um, I don't remember. Does it use a specialized high angle stylet? Uh, no. So I, I guess we'll talk about this now. No. So the King Vision channeling, according to because like you, I haven't also used a King Vision uh, outside of getting to uh, sure. I, play I didn't with care one for it when I used. Yeah, I, I, I didn't same, care for it on but, the mannequin. Tell you, uh, but. But uh, the ch- ones with channeling, they do not need a stylet. In fact, you should not okay. use a stylet with them because that will that the high angle means mm. that it kind of lines it directly up, and you use you use the laryngoscope essentially to uh, so the aim skill, the it tube. has a built-in guide. Okay, yeah, gotcha, gotcha, yeah, gotcha. yeah. Alrighty, the we'll, we'll talk that about that later. Yeah. But uh, but they have yeah. a stylet in it when they shouldn't. Okay. Yep. So the King cool. Vision and tube uh, remain in the patient's mouth. Uh, as Faye says, like, I can't get it to pass. And Ick steps up to the plate and attempts the intubation, changing nothing, except that it's now Ick yeah. instead of Faye. Um, okay. They are also unable to get the tube to pass. So um, Faye asks for a standard Mac 3 blade and a 7.0 tube uh, while uh, Ick is trying this. And uh, essentially, when Ick can't get it, switches out for a standard Mac three blade 7.0 tube and <clears throat> secures the ETT, which then is cool. confirmed with lung sounds uh, and uh, auscultation and entitled CO2 um, auscultation over the uh, epigastric area, lung sounds, no epigastric sounds, positive end title. Um, so Tem believes that the total time for the patient not being bagged, like from intubation setup to finish uh, took about two minutes, but I'm going to take this with a grain of salt because time moves weird in high stress moments. And I think we tend to short, like we, even in the best of situations, people are really bad at guessing time. That that's mm-hmm. been my experience. Maybe there's one person who has it down to a T and they're like, no, I know that 37 seconds has passed. Uh, but anytime mm-hmm. I'm working, I, I find I'm like, Oh, it only took me a minute. No, it actually took me two. It took me three. 
Uh, yeah. It just felt like a minute. So he feels that time that, that not a lot of time was lost in terms of positive pressure ventilation. Maybe, probably okay. not. Um, so I'm yeah. always the opposite. I'm always like, God, this is taking too long. And someone's like, but it's been 15 seconds. <laughs> You're fine. Yeah. So. yeah. Um, so the lung sounds on that, uh, when they listened, were noted to be diminished on the right side. But hey, good news. Now we have a set of vitals. So the patient's GCS is still three. Heart rate remains 90. Blood pressure is 138 over 78. Uh, respirations via uh, BVM, I'm assuming, are 12 a minute. Uh, that seems like a standard rate because uh, I know that they are being bagged. Um, end tidal CO2 comes back at 46. And the patient is now 95% <clears throat> on 15 liters per minute of oxygen. So, uh, yeah, Ick asks Sis, all right, hey, uh, you're going to be transporting the patient to the trauma center? And Sis says, no, let's go to the closest because airway was a concern. Uh, and if you're going like, wait a minute, is it though? Because the airway was because established. Because they, they just got intubated. Yeah, like, yeah. Well, what else got, is the non-trauma center going to do? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Hmm, I don't know. They will later tell Tem that they just didn't think that the patient would make it to the trauma center. Okay. So... Um, again, mm, I, what's, what's the difference in time <laughs> in, in, in travel time here? Uh, so it's 10 minutes to the closest or 30 minutes being, giving the longest estimate to the, uh, to the trauma center. Okay. So, um, I would, I would say that I do not have enough information right now on hand to say that that is a valid concern. I, I think that's the fairest I can be on that statement. What the information we have says, no, you should be able to make it to the other hospital unless. Yeah. yeah but anyway, yeah. Um, so the supervisor uh, okays this and calls in patient report to the closest hospital on behalf of the crew. Tem gets up <clears throat> and starts driving the ambulance uh, lights and sirens. So fail and lure right in. Uh, 10 minutes to that closest hospital. And here's what we know happens in route. Uh, several IV attempts were made by CIS before Lure successfully placed a, places a tibial IO. Uh, a liter of unwarmed normal saline was pressure bagged into the patient. Um, I did ask about any kind of heating, uh, given that it was you know, cold outside. Um, and Tem does not recall any heating measures being taken, like a blanket, warm air, etc. So uh, at the receiving hospital, the patient was quickly placed on a ventilator. They had warming procedures and blood products started and were taken to CT. I do have follow-up, but uh, we're going to have to wait till after we review this call. So Chris, yeah. um, remind us why we're angry. <laughs> so end of call, System and Ick of 99 Problems Ambulance Service responded to a single vehicle rollover uh, with a partial ejection. They thought it was two people, turned out to be one. Yeah. Uh, they arrived to find a 20-ish male, unresponsive, diagonal breathing, partially trapped under a car. And uh, there's some difficulty in getting the immediate life threat managed, uh, as well as some appropriate, uh, inappropriate CPR uh, that gets performed. Most of that difficulty getting the immediate life threat managed is, has nothing to do with the patient and everything to do with the cooperation of our uh, additional cats. responders. Of all the cats yeah. responding. Of, yeah. all, of all the cats. Uh, the patient gets extracted from the scene and moved to the ambulance on a backboard uh, eventually. Uh, cyst 
and uh, Tem and Ick are joined by the ambulance firefighters Faye and Lure. Uh, firefighters Faye and Lure. Lear? Failure? Failure? Whatever. Uh, I didn't notice. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Uh, Good patient care is uh, thrown completely aside while everyone uh, fixates on the most important thing ever. Uh, Just just get in that tube and just letting the rest uh, go go to the wayside. Uh, Equipment issues uh, also prevent the ETT from getting established very quickly uh, as both Faye and Ick uh, fail to intubate uh, the patient. Eventually, Faye gets it uh, when they use equipment they actually know how to use uh, and use a uh, slightly smaller tube, uh, the 7.0. And uh, then we go to the wrong hospital shortly after that. And uh, yeah, sorry, maybe it's not the wrong hospital. I just, I feel like it is. uh, I I join you in that feeling. Yeah. Yeah. It's, but... More, more than a feeling. <laughs> oh boy. Well, uh, Spence, I know what I want to talk about. But what kind of things? Uh, what kind of lesson topics can we? Uh, I, I think I want to talk a little this. bit about one of the uh, human traits that falls in, uh, in into this. I, I see a lot of target fixation on on this, especially uh, once we got that airway. Yeah, yeah, yeah with yeah. that airway, especially. So I think that's worth talking about. I think mm-hmm. there are a lot of system problems um, that I hope you're going to be able to provide uh, some enlightenment on because uh, I just kind of like I'm like, yeah, that seems bad. And I feel like there's, yeah, uh, you know, but you are much better at that piece than I am, uh, I guess. <laughs> we'll uh, see. <laughs> well, um, yeah. What about you? Uh, well, yeah, I want to touch base on those. I want to talk about the importance of scene leadership quite a bit in this one because yeah. that that to me was the crux of the problem. Uh, kind of, I mean, there, it's one of many problems. But yeah. if you have good scene le- leadership, you can get past some of the worst protocols. Um, yeah, you can also have nine, you can have ninety nine problems, but your scene leadership ain't one. It's the- <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, yeah, so there's a yeah scene leadership. Uh, talk a little bit more about airway decision making. I mean, I don't think it's necessarily a bad idea to manage the airway in this patient. It's no. not. It's just it's how they went about doing it and forsaking all else, and that target fixation you mentioned. And then the other thing too is um, I briefly touched on this later on, but um, speaking up. Now, given ultimately, I'm going to kind of project what I think is is a problem, a major problem on this scene to where sometimes even speaking up can be difficult, especially when you're in Tem's situation. Yeah. Um, you know, Tem's position, because it, it's easier to speak up when you're in a leadership role. Uh, how about this? When you're the one, when you are in a role where you can take PIC uh, and have the credentials behind it, it's a lot easier to speak up. When you're Tem and you've been an EMT for one year and you're almost a paramedic, um, it's speaking up becomes harder. It does, yeah. you know, and, and even if you do it, it may not be effective, you know, because yeah. you have to convince people who uh, allegedly have more training than you to do what their training is telling them to do. And unfortunately, part of that, especially if we're talking about delay, means that someone may, may have to be like, oh, shit, I should have been on this. In other words, you're not just asking people to do their job. You're asking them to admit error, at least on some level, for not getting to it in the first place. And humans don't like to do that. Yeah. Um, so anyway, yeah. um, 
I'll let you start while I gather myself. Talk about whatever you want to talk about for a bit. So Perfect. All right. Well, let's talk about the idea of target fixation because that played mm-hmm. a big part in this. And, you know, like Chris and I, I, I came into EMS right, I think, at the tail end of, you know, where where it was recognized that like, hey, if you get the tube, but you kill the patient in the process of trying to get the tube, you know, like, yeah. that's not a win. Um, so, but we see this in all sorts of things, like distracting injuries. Um, there's all sorts of things in situations that can arise, not just this call, uh, where Mm. target fixation is the problem. And essentially what, what it is, it's you're focusing on one piece or one aspect or one goal, uh, at, at the detriment of the overall goal. You know, like if our goal is to get the patient to the hospital, uh, as alive as possible, like with as, you know, like with as much, you know, we talk about, we don't save lives. We, you know, we secure percentages, <laughs> right, <laughs> you know, yeah. like, like, like you, if you want to give this patient the highest chance, uh, then, yeah. you know, like that's the overall goal and getting an airway, like in this call is just one aspect of that. If you do it well, it might be beneficial, but if you do it right. badly, you have and, and and you focus solely on that outcome, then you have and you can do so to the detriment of the patient. Um, so, uh, yeah, like by fixating on this outcome uh, on just we need to get the airway, uh, they essentially accomplish they accomplish the opposite. Right. Right. And so a perfect analogy for this is actually where the term target fixation comes from. And what it is, is it's fighter pilots attacking ground targets and target fixation comes from that because what will happen is the fighter pilot will fixate on that target and targets not quite in range, don't quite have to crosshairs on it. So we got to hold this because eventually you have to pull up. Right. Yeah. Otherwise, you end up dirt diving. And what will happen is like, all right, got the crosshairs on. Boom, missiles away. And then, unfortunately, you didn't leave yourself enough time to uh, to follow up. And so while you got the missiles off, you then crash into the hillside. Or, and that's kind of where the term target fixation comes from. Yeah. Or you're doing your trench run on the Death Star, and you're just like, stay on target. Stay on and, target. Yeah. And the, and the <laughs> exactly. TIE fighters are coming in from the side, and you know, everyone's right. like, pull up. You got to get out of there. And it's like, no, I got to stay on target. And then that guy dies. Yeah. And hey, who... Uh, <laughs> Who ended up doing it? Yeah, the guy that turned off his targeting computer and relaxed, <laughs> and reached out with the reached out with the senses. That's right. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And then he uh, was all clear, kid. Yep. So here's the thing: uh, why why does this happen? And I think a lot of it arises from pressure, uh, stress. Um, when we are stressed, that induces that kind of gut level thinking, heuristical thinking, where we we don't we essentially abandon higher thought because there isn't enough space, there isn't enough time. We have this perception that we got to get this done, um, and that kind of stops us from thinking about the full thing in in, in focus. We're essentially diving underwater, and you know, like we're running out of air. So we got to fucking get this done. And the person who is able to kind of stand back, who has the, you know, like, and not all scenes have this, like, you know, sometimes it's just you two and there are 30,000 things that need to get done. And mm, that's a bad situation. But in a scene like where you have somebody who's able to sit back and kind of survey over this and able to maintain that you know their head above water and see what's going on that then 
this is less likely to happen. Um, obviously not, not in this case, but, uh, yeah. Yeah. So what happens there is in our, in our gut thinking, we just sort of forget that you know, like we, we lose that ability to track the overall point of what we're trying to do, what we're trying to accomplish. Um, and we anchor, uh, onto ideas like, we need to get an ETT because that's the only airway forgetting that like, Hey, we were just, just a couple seconds ago, we were BBMing this guy and probably potentially to good effect. You know, I, I'm assuming, <laughs> you know, being charitable, yeah. let's assume that they were BBMing well. Um, and so they had time, but again, in this rush to that, you forget about that because we just got to get this done. Um, I, this sounds again, like outdated training and knowledge where, you know, it's like, it's an ETT or it's basically not an airway. Um, and, uh, and that, again, that's just, that prevents, you know, forward thinking. So who does this happen to? The, literally everyone. There is me. N- <laughs> yeah. yeah. There is you. N- yeah. There is no one his, who is immune to this. And that's why it's really important to have, like, you need a team to do this job. You, no mm-hmm. one can do this you alone. Do. Yeah. Uh, because you need somebody who is able to take that role of overseer essentially and help keep things on track. Uh, and they need people to respond, to give them information, to make sure things stay on track. So again, the, the, the mitigation for this is essentially you, we need one, we need to be aware that this happens. Right. And we, we know to some extent, that's why they're called like, that's why we have things like watch out for distracting injuries because we get fixated on the thing that, you know, looks grossest and troubles us the most. And then we forget that the quiet thing of not breathing isn't happening. Right. Taking that and applying it more broadly to all aspects of uh, an EMS call is is important. So recognizing that this is something that can happen to you um, and then training for that or just training in general to good procedural, like, you know, competence um, helps mitigate that fact. Because I guarantee that if this crew had been in a system where uh, training had, I I can only assume that this is, there is an absence of uh, ongoing airway training at this place. Uh, or I should say an absence of quality ongoing airway training, because then they would have been able to kind of cohesively come together as a team, recognize the value of pre-oxygenation. Those, those things, if you train on them enough, then it, you take it away from that, like higher, th- like having to be a higher thought and it becomes more muscle memory. And then when you are stressed, that is what you're thinking of are those things that you have kind of worked into muscle memory. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, what I can tell you is if there was training on this, it certainly wasn't applied. So, um, yeah, or, yeah. or if, there, well, maybe the training is uh, fixate and, and forsake bagging, in which case it falls perfectly. Um, Let the Death Star win. Yeah. Okay. But, okay. But honestly, honestly, like, yeah, I mean, that kind of is the training when, when you, um, when you have a system that basically sits there and, and um, villainizes intubation. Uh, yeah. in, a, in a passive aggressive way. Yeah. Your training does kind of actually set you up to do exactly what happened. So I don't know. Yeah. That is the training, I guess. Anyway, maybe not. I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't work in that system. But um, the other thing too is like, you know, this is where scene leadership can really come in. Right. Because yeah. 
I've talked about it before. When you're the PIC, the PIC is not necessarily the smartest person in the room. The PIC at their best is a conduit of information. Yeah. And that is what it, the, it, PIC is not a rank. PIC is an intervention like starting an IV or getting an airway. That's all it is. You are a conduit of information and your job as PIC is to take in info and make assignments. And if that is your sole job, it gets almost difficult to only take in one source of information and only take in one and only perform one assignment. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, so when your whole job is to make assignments, like, yeah, you, you're going to get, you're going to have to actively reach out and get information, feed it back to your team and make assignments. And if that's the case, it can almost be, it makes it harder, not impossible, but harder to get involved in target fixation. Um, and so, yeah, the I mean, I could spend all day on seeing leadership on this one, but a lack of scene leadership, I felt, yeah. really contributed to things going uh, askew. But again, like in a patient where we have an airway problem and we really seem to have airway protocols that don't arm us to really deal with an airway appropriately, uh, especially with no post-sedation protocol, which is redonkulous, yeah. um, then, I, then, yeah, we are setting ourselves up uh, yeah. for this to happen. What? Uh, because, I mean, again, even if you are a good leader, like what tools do you have? Yeah. No, I, you know. yeah, no, 100%. And I, I think that's, I think this is kind of the, the difficulty of a call like this is that I, well, you know, like the crew, they, the crew on this call did not perform what I would describe as excellent patient care. I no. think that. And I, I hate saying that. I hate saying that, but I'm sorry. Go ahead, man. I cut you off. But no, no, no. I, but I think that the fault the the higher uh like the crew is 37 percent at fault and the system is the rest of it uh like the 63 yeah the, because there are so many problems that can that i can just sort of see in this one call and, and that's that's tough to say like i i mean maybe i'm speaking flippantly but i really right. do feel that this is one where given what we know of this system the system, mm -hmm. oh, the, like this outcome, does not surprise me. Um, yeah, right? No, it a, doesn't. It, a system should not rely on their like you, you. You shouldn't have an EMS system where your crews basically have to perform at one hundred percent and cannot make mistakes for things to go well. A system should yeah. be set up so that your crews are can are appreciated as human and able to make mistakes and able to misread things and able to fall into target fixation problems or, you know, like your system should be able to go like, Hey guys, we use different equipment than this other company does. Right. Be, be watch out for that because mm -hmm. they are different techniques. Like that should oh, yeah. be built in so that, people can know like your system should be there to mitigate problems. It shouldn't be the crucible that you have to make it through for your patient to survive. Anyway. Um, <laughs> right. Well, let's, yeah. Oh, go on. Sorry. I got oof, one more thing I want, I, I want to touch on. I, I, I know, but I, I just, I, I kind of want to touch on this overall. To, one to, 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 to highlight your point. It's one of those things where you look, it's like, I have a, a paramedic, who has some known training issues. I'm putting them, you know, with with somebody else in a system that doesn't give me much in the way to do that almost seems to ignore advanced airways. Like you don't even have post 
post-innovation sedation protocol, what are you supposed to do? And the patient starts waking up. Sir. Next debate. <laughs> Sir, well, no, but calm down. <laughs> and so it's just one of the things where it's like, what did you think was going to happen? Yeah. What did you think was going to happen? This is one of those where you look back at it and it's like, yeah, guys, this was the outcome that you created. This is the outcome you went for. Whether you know it or not, this was the outcome you supported. Yeah. Uh, and here's what the system, kind of, and, and again, I want to make it clear. If we If we don't make it clear enough, all we can possibly do on this show is react to what we're told by one person, okay? And so yeah. we understand that this may be a completely inaccurate representation. And so what I want our listeners to do is not sit there and think about, gosh, what system is this? But rather think about what system could this be? And if this is a system, what are the problems with it? And that's kind of the kind of the way to, to do that. Yeah. Um, and what this looks like to me, this looks like a resource limited system to me that it that has some cash flow issues. And what we have done is we have reduced training. We're reducing protocols to match the reduced training. And I will tell you the truth. It seemed like most of the providers on there were avoidant. And so as much as I want to be like cis here, you know, it, it is a problem. I'm not convinced that that this is the problem. Sys may be a low performer in a low performing system, but I don't have, based on the supervisor that just watched the shit show happen, uh, based on a firefighter randomly starting CPR and someone that didn't need that, based on everybody but Tem not focusing on the patient, which is really the only reason you're there. um, I, I feel like it is likely that every provider on there was avoidant and not confident that yeah. every provider on there had a hole or gap in their continued training. That yep. is what this scene felt like to me. No one, no one stepped forward because no one was confident enough to step forward. And when you have protocols written like that, I really start to doubt that the system is really putting resources into training, into yeah. appropriate training. And again, I don't know enough about the system to make that statement clearly, but what I'm saying is that if you are in a system where you're not putting appropriate resources into consistent, high-quality training, like the kind of training that you can get at the Fast 24 <laughs> conference happening June 10th through the 12th in Wilmington, North Carolina, um, then these are the kind of outcomes I want you to expect. Yeah. Okay. Well I, I don't even want to say these are the outcomes you need to try to avoid because you're not trying to avoid them. This is just what you have to expect. If yeah. you're giving poor training, look forward to this. Yeah. Um, let's do this then. Let's, as we go through this, because we'll go through this in sort of our normal, uh, our normal yeah. aspect, but let's talk about if there's a, you know, if we get to a point where it's like, hey, the system owned a part of this, let's talk about it there. Um Rather than try and because I think we're going to end up repeating ourselves a lot, given that the if we talk about all the system problems up front and then go back and touch on the uh, the interventions or the just the, the flow, the, the call as it flowed. Um, so uh, the first thing I, and I'm glad we got to talk about this right away because that was something that really bugged me was. All right. So we have a we had that supervisor who said, hey, watch out for this guy. He might suck. But, not exactly those words, but basically the the, the measure. Um, and you had said we had all established like, yeah, that's not the best way to do that. Um, mm -hmm. 
I given I want to say and maybe this is me being mad at this supervisor because, you know, like to some extent that's forgivable, right? Like maybe probably didn't get the best supervisor training. But the fact that this guy who's the supervisor stood back and let this shit show happen also could signal to me that this is just a person. And there are there are supervisors who are really good supervisors and then there are supervisors who are um uh people who have thrived in a bad system and uh aren't like you know and they're just like yeah my shit doesn't stink and they're like good you should become a supervisor here you're well liked nothing bad has happened to you and they're not any more competent than the next person. True. Um, you know, yeah. they're, they're the kind of guy that would go like, you know, I've never flipped. Uh, I kayak a lot. Never flipped once. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's crazy. And, uh, yeah. And then, uh, <laughs> you know, when you, you get them out on a river, they don't know how to kayak. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, yep. yeah, that's yeah. Uh, uh, mm. anyway, <laughs> I, again, it's one call and that's kind of dickish of me. But uh, I, I, I I'm just, with you. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, I think a good thing that happened on this call was the pregame conversation. Uh, they talked yeah. about triage and, uh, you know, Tem even thought about like, hey, the trauma hospital is connected yeah. to this. We road. thought about resources yeah. for multiple patients. Yeah. Um, you know, so. we're, yeah. no, that was that was good. Uh, if only the call would have ended there. Um <laughs> But it didn't. And so so we get on scene and once they get on scene, there's there's an immediate failure to establish a clear PIC at all. In fact, no one just no one did anything. One person, as far as I recall, correct me if I'm wrong, one person approached the patient. That was Tim. Yep. Yeah. So no established roles. I think we have uh, I think the primary assessment was good. But I think it still needed some pieces that were left out. Um, um, like, I don't think it was good. I disagree. But good. Okay, uh, I was giving uh, I was giving some credit. I guess uh, where I saw it was good was that you know there was the focus on hey, is there any major bleeding that we can see that needs to be stopped that right was now? Uh, Actually, the no. Airway I, was I, clear. I changed my opinion. The breathing. They noticed. You know, they were like, he's taking agonal breaths. That's insufficient for continued life. Although, yeah. Mm. I, I mean, mm. life finds a way, I guess. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, but I guess we'll find other out. Other pieces, uh, other pieces uh, that probably should have happened at that moment. And, you know, uh, for what it's worth, lung sounds are important. Listen to lung sounds, because yes. one of the things that in a trauma patient who is partially out of a vehicle, uh, there is a lot of force there. There could be a tension pneumothorax that would like quickly kill this patient. And that is one of those pieces that you want to be able to identify early (laughs) on for, Hey guys, we had a pulse and now we don't that, that, that would be the piece I would add. Um, Pelvic stability, also a really good one to take because you want to know if, Hey, like, is this a patient who's potentially losing a lot of blood inside? Um, And yeah, it's difficult to do the, uh, the, you know, distal leg assessment. And I I don't know in lieu of not knowing whether it's a better idea to wait until the legs come out or be ready at the very minimum to throw some tourniquets on the legs. Uh, if you, you know, like when they come out and you're some prep work, yeah, yeah. some prep work 
uh, ahead of the game uh, probably would be solid, but I'm getting ahead of myself there. I, I, I just think there were some, some opportunities that were missed. And again, if it's one person doing this, um, and also trying to make sure that like the, the life saving interventions that they're asking for to happen also are happening. It, it's really hard to, to do that. Um, cats are hard to herd. So, yeah, no, they are. Um, yeah, I think so. I told you I disagreed with you. I actually do. I agree that the walk up assessment was actually pretty good. Yeah, uh, I, I, I agree with you on that where I think it fell apart is. Once we got the patient out from underneath the car, yes, and there was better opportunity to continue that assessment, it just didn't happen. I mean, we and we didn't we didn't reassess our interventions either. That's another thing to remember, guys. Once you do an intervention, uh, intervention, <laughs> intervention such as bag valve mask, uh, you need to assess that that's working. That's a big part of performing interventions, right? Yes. Um. So that wasn't done ever at any point, at least that was relayed to us. Yeah. Uh, and we never, I don't really recall anyone doing a head to toe after we got the patient out and seeing if there's any immediate bleeding, which I'd like to think it'd be obvious, but you know, still yeah. look, I just don't recall it being mentioned. And at this point, I'm not willing to give anybody any credit for anything I haven't heard them do. So, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, maybe yeah. may, maybe a thorough head to toe was done after they were intubated and en route to the hospital sure. when everything had kind of calmed down. But by then it's, it's not, I don't want to say it's too late, but you got lucky, <laughs> I guess, yeah. you know, like, yeah. uh, you know, Hey, are the lung sounds were the lung sounds abs like diminished on one side before intubation or did that mm -hmm. happen after intubation? That's important stuff to know. Um, yeah, you know, it, it, it's rare that it would be, you know, like usually it's the right main stem. So the left side would be, uh, diminished, but, uh, yeah, it, it's still, an important thing to have done beforehand. Um, I'm going to throw this out there. No one ever checked a blood sugar. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's fair. Could have got Just, the sugars knocked out of them. <laughs> or maybe that's why they crashed in the first place. Uh, it wasn't, but yeah, but yeah. Uh, yeah. All right. Okay. I, I'm actually going to point out that like, actually it seems silly, but checking a CBG on trauma patients, I'm not going to say it's the priority, but it's actually not a terrible idea. It does happen. We reviewed a call uh, earlier on, yeah. uh, like early on in our thing where somebody had something similar happen. Um, oh, that's uh, uh, low and be cold. Well, or sorry, no, what, should that have was, been low and be cold. God, I know that was a great one. No, it oh, was uh, it was a trauma call you had brought. Um, oh, mm. well, yeah, yeah. Th those, anyway. those things can happen. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it, it can happen. So CBG can be important. So yeah, if there's time check, I mean, I'm not saying like, yeah. all right, he's bleeding out, but let me get a CBG off the arterial spray before we, before we shut it down. <laughs> <laughs> you know, don't do that. Oh, hold on. Don't plug it yet. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. yeah hang so on. Funny. We'll get a CBG. Uh, Where's the yeah, CBG so, kit, guys? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so yeah, but let's talk about the treatments that they did do. Okay. Specifically, the only one they really did, which was an intubation. Uh, yeah. And I, I want to talk about the fluid. Um, I think my thoughts are kind of known. Uh, I know you talked about uh, with Q on this with some of QS. I know Q is also... Q and I have had many conversations regarding airway. We're kind of along the same line, but... Yeah. My, my biggest problems with this was that, um, look... The area management may have been important. I don't recall much of an assessment. I, I know there wasn't a lot of fluid or anything. I don't recall there being much in the way of airway obstruction on this patient. Um, but, you know, I, I don't think the decision to intubate this patient is out and out wrong. No. The way they did it, though, was completely wrong. Yes. Um, and I, this is probably a patient, all things considered, that I would have intubated as well. Um, but 
this patient needed good quality bag valve mask work beforehand. They needed pre-oxygenation because I've said it a lot, right? And that is that if you have someone who is a healthy uh, a healthy patient, which this person's in their 20s. So if we're talking about healthy lungs, they're a good candidate for it, even though we do have bruising up and down one side. Yeah. Um, you know, but uh, you know, this person's a good candidate for pre-oxygenation. If, uh, you know, that mix of air in the lungs is normally 20% oxygen, the rest is nitrogen and then other crap. And Argon. Argon, yeah. some, Yeah, something like that. Yeah, I don't know. CO2 is in there too. But, um, you know, you, uh, but you go in there and blood keeps circulating, right? Well, if, uh, you know, 20% of that air in there is oxygen, the blood's going to kind of run out of oxygen molecules to grab. Uh, as it goes through if you're not replenishing them. Well, if you replace all those molecules with oxygen or as much as you can to get close to 100%, then even when the patient's apneic and you're going to intubate, that blood circulating still has a lot of oxygen to grab. And so uh, you can have a healthy a healthy set of adult lungs can last eight minutes apneic before dropping below 90%. Yeah. That's huge. That's a lot of time to intubate. Yeah. Now, that safe apnea time goes down when you start adding in things like Lung disease or pediatrics, those kind of things. Sure. Um, yeah, when you put children speaking, in the lungs, like, uh, it takes yeah, up a lot of space, yeah. as it turns out. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, one taller can actually take out both of them. But uh, <laughs> anyway, so, uh, but yeah, but that's generally, yeah, we start talking about those things. Yeah, that goes down. But, you know, pre-oxygenation is absolutely key. Um but yeah, that's kind of that. That's my main take and, on it. And I want to point out, like in a patient where you know, we're suspecting a head injury, right? Because the vitals were solidly decent. The patient is unresponsive AF, right? Um, so sure. I'm in, I'm in, and and also like the mechanisms there. They're partially outside of their vehicle. I can't imagine uh, unless yeah. there was like a pillow under their head, and they're just like, wow, <laughs> what luck. Uh, yeah. SPF would uh, hit a probably, yeah, I know SPF is softwood. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. Um, but that's a patient that I'm assuming probably has a bleed. Right. Uh, and you don't like one way to make things worse in a contained closed container is one, you have blood where it's not supposed to be filling up space, but two, you also have swelling from tissue that isn't getting oxygen adding to that. Yeah. And so if you want to make somebody's uh, uh, brain bleed worse or the potential outcome of the what they could eventually undergo uh, worse, uh, just deprive it of oxygen. Um, that's, you know, th that's a great way to, uh, really negatively impact your, pa your, your, your patient's, uh, likelihood of survival. Um, yeah. so it's, it's important for all patients, but like, God damn, especially in, in a patient where we're suspecting a head injury, uh, to make sure that we are maintaining oxygenation. Um, so Q brought up a really interesting point in regards to this, and I, I think it might be it could come across as controversial, but I think I understand their point and I, I find myself agreeing with it. Um, so the thought was, you know, and this was taken off the statement, no LMA, we want an endotracheal tube. Um, oh, I see. Yeah. yeah. They didn't want to do an eye gel or anything like that. Yeah. But okay, yeah. Here's, a, here's an interesting situation, which is, hey, uh, when you're in a situation where the airway you might immediately want to establish a solid enough airway. Like you're out, I don't know, on a fence with a car that might roll over uh, uh, and you're not really able to 
ensure that you're able to get a good bag valve mask seal. Maybe you don't have the resources because they're all fucking standing behind you. Uh, whatever. Like that is a good situation that you can drop an LMA in. And, and, and there might be some hesitation from people because they're like, well, I don't know if it's the best airway. Well, I'll tell you what, it's better than uh, a BVM at this point, especially if you, cause it gives you one, you can then put an end title, uh, capnography piece on it and you can start measuring. Hey, actually I know it's getting a saw. Like I'm, I'm getting solid air movement. I'm ventilating this patient. And then two, the thing that I think people get trapped on is that they're like, well, once it's in, I will not change it. And that is not necessarily true. Uh, and this is uh, Q's point is that, Hey, in a situation where you know, like this, where it's like, Hey, let's put in an SGA. And then once we know we have the airway secure, we've taken that pressure off us. We can work on getting the patient moved into the back of the ambulance where we have better lighting, we have better conditions, and then we can reevaluate the SGA and determine if we want to keep that airway. Um, and you know, and so I I am loath to take away an airway that's working, but this, but I think there is a point where being flexible enough to say, Hey, I'm going to keep this airway, but for the time being, because it's better than just bagging with a, you know, OPA in, but being open to the ability of, Hey, I can change this. If at a later time I find that, you know what, I, I think I can, I have a high likelihood of success of getting an ETT. Um, then you can be able to do that in the back of an ambulance with better conditions versus trying to do it on scene or going, I don't want to put in a SGA here because I think they need an ET too, because it's better. So I'm going to just continue shittier airway techniques. Um, and I, again, like my chances are for me, uh, if I drop an eye gel on a patient or a King airway in a patient, um, and then I move them out into a area where like into the ambulance, like I don't usually change unless there is something that spurs me to change. But I like the idea. I think this, that idea of being flexible enough, if your system allows, you know, like there are protocols that are like, Nope, don't do that. If you have an airway, no, like sure. that's the, that's sure. you fucking did it. You've accomplished the goal. And to some part that's true, but I think it's also, I think in the systems that allow it, it's good. It's a good idea to keep that flexibility in um, that. Hey, maybe we reevaluate it and we find like, yeah, actually the eye gel, there's like blood or vomit that I can hear bubbling up inside of it. Or uh, there's, you know, the, it's, it's working, but I'm not getting great oxygenation. It might be that maybe it would be better with a better airway that I can actually just push long. Maybe there's tracheal injury that is better suited, you know, uh, with an ET tube because you can kind of move the tube down past that point of injury. There's all sorts of weird scenarios that you can come up with, but I think the point again is to be flexible. So, um, I think that, that's another piece that should be considered here. But again, going back to the system, uh, because, you know, first examine the system, this doesn't sound like a system that actually would give that much thought into it. You know what I mean? Like, it sounds like, no. Yeah. yeah. So the system kind of pretends it doesn't exist actually. Advanced yeah. airways anyway. Um, so what do you have thoughts on that? Uh, cause what do you think? No, no, I kind of, I, I've kind of spoke my point, my All point right. on innovation. And whatnot. All right. Um, I think for me, like though, I want to touch a little bit back on some of the disagreements uh, that that 
that Tim had. And one of the things that I mentioned that earlier is that, uh, yeah, I, I think Tim, in, instead of going to their partner and being like, hey, can you help out? Uh, getting the intention of the entire team, I think, was probably necessary. Um, and the thing is, it's okay to be assertive when patient care is is at risk. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and, and maybe you piss some people off, but you know what? You'll get the chance to address it after the fact and clear the air, especially in a patient like this. Uh, and one of the things that I want to make sure that people do, one of the best things you can do when you disagree is to make sure that you speak in clinical terms. Right? Yes. Um, now, earlier... <laughs> Earlier, I was like, hey, yeah, tell them to fucking help and get mad, um, you know, but I was I was also angry at that moment when I said that. Listen, um, I was angry. I might have said some things. I'm sorry. Yeah. But hey, good you news. Know, You're getting a chance to address it now, later, after the yeah. call. So but but the hard part about this, though, is is like I I feel that this is one of those calls where based on what was going on. OK, so typically when you have a disagreement, speaking in clinical terms uh, is, is good. You know, make it about objective items. Like, Hey, we have an airway where we have agonal respirations, uh, you know, when in regards to patient care and not about like your partner, or their bullshit plan, you know, like sure. that's, yeah. that's, that's not what it's about. God, you suck. And I have to correct it again. That's not what's going to, yeah. Um, this works really well when you have two people who are treating in different directions. One of the, the main issue on this scene that I see is that and I think this is Tem's uphill battle is that you had a patient that as it was described to us, no one should have been standing around doing nothing. Nobody should. Yeah. It was blatantly obvious. You have an unresponsive patient under a car. You have, you either have another engine full. Cause here's the thing. If you have another engine on the way, I highly doubt those four firefighters are going to start moving the car without them getting on scene. Yeah. Um, what I can tell you is that you have a patient with agonal respirations, uh, fixing that is probably your priority before getting that car off anyway, uh, because if it's going to take you five minutes to get off the car and you don't address those respirations and congratulations, you've recovered a body. So, uh, you know, depending yeah. on how hypoxic the patient's been already. Yeah. And so the problem I see here is it isn't like we had two responders trying to treat in different directions. We had one responder trying to treat. And six trying and 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 I mean this based on the way it was told to us, practically trying not to treat. Yeah. And so I see a bigger issue than a simple disagreement here. I think Tem was fighting a system of again, like what appears to be six responders who are uncomfortable, who do not want to step up uh, until suddenly it becomes apparent that something must be done. And then we have every responder stepping up and doing something in their own way. Yeah. One guy jumps in to do CPR. Another person starts screaming. They need an airway, uh, but not that airway, this, this airway, you know, and it's just kind of, yeah, it's just so haphazard. And so while I think, uh, you know, yeah, I mean, I, I think Tim, um, probably need to get the attention of the group. I think Tim was at a severe disadvantage with the system that they faced. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, 100%. So. Yeah, so uh, I had to look up the King Vision. Um, the ch the channel blades they allow for a six to eight millimeter tube because it was it was there was some concern that maybe the seven and a half was too big, which was why it wasn't going through. But those are sure. again to be used without stylets, and so that is a training issue. Um, and again, going back to the you know Ick and the system, uh, the fact that Ick, who's a supervisor for this service didn't recognize that the stylet was the problem again, just sort of 
shows that the lack of, uh, I guess, pr- progressive airway training that these guys have. Um, so yeah. anyway, we uh, I've said enough about that, but uh, just wanted to make sure that was in there. No, no, I'm I'm with you. Uh, so the transport rationale, you and I kind of touched on it earlier. Yeah. Uh, going to the trauma center versus the closest one. I think this patient should have gone to the trauma center. I mean, we had the airway established. Yeah. Um, I don't understand why CIS necessarily thought the patient wasn't going to make it to the other trauma center. Because um, we didn't have a hypotensive patient. Yeah. Um, and I kind of actually, I want to back up a little bit. Another treatment is why were we, why were we pressure bagging a liter of normal saline into this patient? <laughs> I'm going to start with the, I, I think those are excellent questions. I'm going to start with, um, I, let's start with the, this proposition. When is it appropriate to take a trauma patient who needs trauma services? Like, and this guy is a, this is a, a, you know, on the trauma criteria, the national trauma criteria that goes out, this guy meets it. Like he meets the mandatory, take them to the highest yeah. level trauma center uh, above all else thing. So yeah. when is it appropriate to take a patient to an alternative uh, hospital where we're essentially delaying care that they otherwise would need? What is, when, when would be a good situation to do that, Chris? When whatever is going on with them, whatever, thing you ha- you are unable to resolve is going to kill them quicker than getting them to trauma, trauma yeah. center. And so air, air, airway compromise, air, you know, air, I don't have an airway or I have bleeding. I can't get controlled. Yes. I, so airway compromise, bleeding that is uncontrolled. I think those are really good things. And airway is the most common one, right? It's like, Hey, you can divert to whatever yeah. hospital you need to, even if it's that podunk, you know, like <laughs> cardboard cutout ER that's in the middle of the nowhere where like that one doctor who scares you works like that. That's a good, that's a good place to go because like, yeah, you need emergent help. Um, I I can tell you anecdotally that I've had, I've, I've heard doctors push back on you. Like we, you and I worked in a system where a patient was, uh, went into essentially, you know, traumatic arrest, uh, due to penetrating chest trauma and they diverted to the closest hospital because their patient had coded and the hospital went, we can't help them because we don't have the cap- We don't have the resuscitative capabilities that they need. You, right. there is no benefit to coming here. And our medical right. director at, for, at the time went, yeah, I mean, they're right. There's not a hospital that's going to be able to save this person going to the trauma, the, the trauma center you know, that was still, you know, 20 minutes away, uh, would have been a better call, uh, in that regard. So, uh, yeah. And that's, again, that's, that's going to be different for in every area, but that's something to keep in mind. I think uh, on this call is that that, while there are permissive times where it's like, yeah, bypass and go to the closest hospital because, you know, they're not bypass, but rather don't bypass. Yeah. Don't bypass. uh, Yeah go to the closest hospital instead of bypassing. Uh, but I, yeah, I think in this situation to answer your question, I think that this is a overwhelming, this is a call that clearly is overwhelming to the providers that were there. Um, it, you know, just want to get rid of them. And they just, they were like, I've, I've, I've had enough. I don't want this patient anymore. And they might legitimately just be afraid that like, I don't like this has already gone so bad. I don't know what else could go wrong. Like, because yeah, they're peaked. (laughs) Well, this is more avoidant behavior. I I, I think, I I think we have, um, 
I think we have field providers that have been let down by their system and uh, they are not comfortable with this patient. And they were legitimately just unsure about what was going on with this patient. Yeah. And it was kind of one of those things where they were fearing what they didn't know, uh, even though it was kind of right in front of them. So, so I look at this patient and I start thinking like, okay, why why would I go to the nearest hospital instead of the appropriate hospital? Well, our airway is established at this point. Yes. Okay. By the time we're making transport decision, we're 95% SATs. Uh, ETCO2 was in the 40s. I don't remember exactly what it was. 46. It was in the 40s. We yeah. have a good tube. 46. And we have a, you know, we have a good tube. And one of the things, I, and shock index is one of the things, guys, it's not gospel, but a shock index is one of the ways that you can determine is someone volume depleted uh, or not. And basically what you do to get your shock index is you take your heart rate and you divide by a systolic blood pressure. Uh, in adults or basically anyone over the age of 13, a value of 0.9 or higher is shock index positive and your patient's very likely hypovolemic. So let's do this math really quick. Quick. Okay, so heart rate of 90, and we're going to divide that by a systolic blood pressure of 138. We get a shock index of 0.65. This person's well below shock index positive. Yeah. So I have someone who's hemodynamically stable. They have a heart rate in the 90s with a good blood pressure and an airway. I, again, unless we're missing something because of how this is told to us, I do not agree with cis that this is someone you need to take to the nearest hospital at all. This is someone who needs to go to... Uh, a place with a trauma OR. And doing so, taking them to the nearest hospital is actually probably, it, it's either a wash and it's not going to really harm them or help them, or it'll harm them. Yeah. Because you and I have talked about this. Once a hospital has to, a hospital transferring a patient to another hospital is not cut and dry. No. It's not. And there's Mtala, and you you will sit there, a best case scenario is it's an hour before they get on their way to the hospital they should be. Uh, well, okay, I won't say best case scenario. I would say a common scenario, even with critical patients, yep. can be an hour. Yep. They can sit there. It's been done faster, I'm sure. I've been part of things that have gone faster, but just bear that in mind. It's not cut it's not cut and dry. And when you do that, you're making a decision to potentially delay uh life-saving intervention that this patient's going to need. And again, this just it boils down again to a system that is rife with providers who appear uncomfortable yeah yeah i so, i agree I, and to yeah. the to, to adding on to the fluid piece the other piece that is often overlooked is warmth and this is sort of this sort of oh, adds to the really good point this sort of adds to the like ah, the the leader of saline probably wasn't necessarily uh because no, it's a leader of it's also it a leader of cold saline in a patient yeah. who and here's the problem with here's why cold is bad uh cold makes it hard for your body to clot appropriately um and so it adds to the you know trauma triad of death uh it yeah. it creates far more problems and so it has to be treated aggressively um you know and, and so like you got to turn on the heat in the ambulance if you're going to give fluids right. ideally warm fluids is the 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 best fluid um and you should probably use fluids conservatively um and yep. give them really when it's indicated um you know that that's that that is what the evidence at this time shows and maybe down the road they're yeah. like actually it turns out everyone needs five liters <laughs> we <laughs> were totally wrong, wrong about that and then you know it the, happens yeah uh, <laughs> it does yeah but i I don't think that one's going to go that way, but it it might. Yeah, yeah. You know? uh, well, you know, uh, leave a fed, uh, leave sure them dead. Me first. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, that's it. that used to be the nickname for leave a fed was leave them dead. Yep. 
Because they used to give it in the field, and then everyone's like, ah, yeah. oh, it's killing them. And then someone's like, oh, so. actually, it's not. It just turns out we give it to a hypercritical set of patients that die anyway. Um, but, well, and here's the problem. The problem with both that I have with this is, one, like you said, so both both hypothermia uh, and large volumes of crystalloid fluid cause issues with uh, coagulation. Yeah. And reduce your ability to coagulate. And someone who we do not want to reduce their ability to coagulate. Yes. Um, so... Both those things leading together. So, yeah, I was kind of disappointed when, when I saw the fluid. I mean, I mean, yeah, spike a line, hang a bag, but uh, this person's otherwise hemodynamically stable. It doesn't even look like their body's trying to compensate. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's not like, oh, it's a good blood pressure, but it's maintained with 120. Yeah. You know. Or a um, heart rate of 40 because so they're in Cushing's, you know what I mean? Like then. Right. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. yeah. I'm not, not really seeing anything like yeah. that here. So. Yeah. So, yeah, I was just kind of like, all right, why are we giving a full liter uh, pressure bag then? Yeah. So anyway, well, um, I think, BLS. yeah, I think this Let's highlights the importance of BLS. Um, listen, uh, one of the things I'm going to say right away is that good positive yeah. pressure ventilation beats out shitty <laughs> in the tracheal yeah. tube any time. Oh yeah. Uh, 10, 10 out of 10 times. Uh, yep. five out of well, five dentists agree. It, <laughs> yeah. It's the same thing. The shitty, the shitty 24 gauge in the hand is better than the 18 you missed. Yep. <laughs> yep. You know, uh, and in this case, yeah, the, the BVMing that was, that works is better than the ETT that isn't placed, you know, like that's, yep. Yep. That's the truth, man. I love it. So, uh, yeah, but, and again, and that's, that's BLS only and let, and let's really face it. This, this patient in particular, everything's kind of BLS. It, it, I, I would say I mean, that the, if they had kept it at a BLS level, it have gotten it better. It would have been better. Yeah. Like, yeah. if they had just the said, hey, only, fuck it, guys. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to assess. If the guy became hypotensive, that's a problem, right? Because Well, no, but this guy, in, in this area, at least, you can get that IV endorsement. Yeah. So, yeah, having that IV available would be great. Even if you couldn't get the IV available, this guy didn't end up needing it, at least for the duration of this transport. Um yeah, you could have BLS this guy, <laughs> like you said, man, it would have gone better. Uh, there are things that that would be nice to have, like obviously, like if the bruising on the right side turned into a pneumothorax or, or a tension pneumothorax, there's not much you can do at the BLS level. That's a problem. Yeah. But in terms of the interventions this patient ultimately needed and received for the duration of this call, it all could have been done via BLS and probably better. Yeah. And so what so. what what would you say that like I, ideally if a BLS person were going to run this call outside of like well actually bagging the patient and uh, and whatnot what do you think the the key parts that they would take away from this would be? Uh, you mean like what 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 should they do? Yeah. Uh, good BBM, good face mask seal. Uh, perform a good assessment. We've said it a hundred million times. The the difference between the BLS and ALS assessment is almost nil. Uh, keep them warm. And get moving. Yeah. And that's that's I really think that's it. kind of the takeaway. Those are the important yeah. things. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And that's ultimately what this patient got, except for the delay in good ventilation, because they really just had to get that ET tube. Yeah. Or the rapid transport, because so, they were all yeah. fucking around getting their the ET, ET tube. tube. Yeah. So, yeah. Or, right. or initially fucking around doing nothing and yeah. letting one dude handle the whole thing. Yeah. And yeah. So mm. so here's, uh, here's the follow up. Uh, the patient was found to have a subdural hematoma. They had a uh, multiple uh, back fracture, spinal fractures, a uh, bunch of broken ribs and uh, broken arm, broken leg on the right side. Uh, the Jesus. patient, a, a uh, critical care team was activated to transport the patient to the trauma hospital. Um, but mm -hmm. unfortunately, 
uh, yeah, circumstances prevented that from happening and the patient was declared brain dead before they could, uh, get treated. So, um, yep. Uh, so they definitely should have gone to the trauma hospital right off the bat then. Uh, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure the circumstance, but I mean, yes, in my opinion, well, okay. yes, but would it have saved the patient? You don't, we don't know yeah. that. Um, but, uh, I can guarantee that if the patient was savable, yeah, this didn't help. Yep. Yeah. And, yeah. uh, you know, uh, lesson for the patient side of this, um, don't drink and drive. That's, uh, yeah. Alcohol was a contributing factor to this, uh, this whole thing. So th- yeah. Thank you everyone for listening to yet another episode of, uh, AMS 2020, uh, Spencer, Angry edition. <laughs> Yeah, angry edition. Oh my god, I already know the artwork is going to be me superimposed on the Incredible Hulk, just getting angry. <laughs> there better um, be cats. I want to see cats. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> cats running from me. Meow. Um, yes, dude, that's it. Yeah, yeah. see chaos <laughs> slash Chris's rage. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, so that's uh, <laughs> that's it for this episode. Uh, yeah. So if you guys want to see me not raging and angry, then you can head to uh, Wilmington, North Carolina, June 10th through the 12th for the Fast 24 uh, conference. Uh, head on over to flybridgeedcom slash Fast 24, and you can get registered uh, for uh, this amazing conference. It's going to have lots of awesome speakers. There's going to be Scott Weingart's going to be there of uh, EMS Crit fame. Uh, and then, of course, they're also going to have uh, Jeff Murphy from uh, Master Your Medics is going to be there, which is awesome. Also, do not forget to uh, sign up for some of the, the pre-conference courses where you can learn how to not innovate like the people in this call, uh, as well as there's going to be Cadaver Lab uh, and just some other amazing courses. So head on over to flightbridgeed.com uh, slash fast24 and uh, get signed up. And yeah, I hope to see you there because I will definitely be there. Spencer will not because uh, he's fake and just an AI. <laughs> it's true. It's all true. <laughs> all right, everybody. We'll, we'll see you in a couple Wednesdays. Bye. Meow. Meow. EMS 2020 is a Long Pause Media LLC production. Episodes are based on submitted calls. This episode was written by Spencer Oliver, reviewed by Contu Curio, audio editing by Chris Finkston.